this episode, Justice League America number 28 and Justice League Europe number 4, cover dated July 1989. Hello, and welcome to the 28th episode of Justice League International Blahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irritable Shag, and I am your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, we feature two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple of issues of the JLI. We'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later, but for now, my first co-host today is a New York Times best-selling author. What? Seriously? Yeah, I'm not kidding. And he's also a comic book historian. He's written numerous comics and graphic novels for publishers such as IDW, you and Archie, and worked on licensed properties including Star Trek, Doctor Who, Angel from the Whedonverse, and more. He's also written prose work covering topics such as the history of Star Trek and the history of comic books. And I imagine if there's any of his work you're not particularly fond of, he'd simply fall back on the defense of, that's my brother's fault. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Scott Tipton. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Scott. Thanks for being here. How's it going, hey, man? Thanks a lot, man. Doing good. It's a beautiful sunny day out here in Santa Monica. Got a big stack of Just League comics. Life is good. <laughs> can't get any better than that, right? I mean, come on. So, I gotta ask you, Scott Tipton, New York Times bestselling author, what? The best thing about that is, by the way, that happens, you know, once or twice, and I get to say it forever. <laughs> I was just gonna say, that doesn't really suck, does it? So, Not too bad. if you don't mind me asking, what works made the list? I was for Star Trek Doctor Who. Oh, okay. We were talking off air, Star Trek Doctor Who is one of my personal faves and meant a world to me, because I'm a fan of both franchises, so that's so fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, how did you get your break in publishing, man? Uh, it winds up, like a lot of things, kind of being in the right place at the right time and then just being ready when it comes up. Um, I had always planned on a career in comics. That was my goal. I, whenever I was in high school and college, I was kind of mentored by Mark Grunewald. The, the Marvel Seriously? Yeah, because I, I, I was a crazy letter hack when I was at, at junior high high school. I would write, I would be in my room on my typewriter writing letters to every comic I loved and some I didn't like. And I got, <laughs> I got a lot of stuff published in the letter columns back then. And so I got to know Mark Grunewald at WonderCon in Oakland. Back then, Marvel would come to that show. And one time I was at the Marvel booth, and he spotted my badge and started hassling me about some of those things I was complaining about in any recent events. <laughs> and, and so I got to know him pretty well, and we would talk throughout the year at every year conventions. And as I was going through college, the plan was going to be that I'd be heading out to New York to try and get an assistant editor's job at Marvel. And then right then was kind of the boss where Marvel was going through their bankruptcy. Mm. And Grunewald said he didn't even think he wasn't even that secure in his position anymore. He said, let's take some time and wait about it. And then a year later, he passed away. Right. And I, at that point, I had already moved out to L.A. And, and started a career in advertising. And I was like, just the idea of comics as a career just kind of like well, it went away with Mark because I was just kind of so bummed out about it. And then jump ahead about a decade or so, and I find myself working on Kevin Smith's website, moviepoopshoot.com. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was uh, Chris Ryle had been recruited by Kevin to run it basically because uh, he had written some bad reviews of Kevin's Green Arrow comics. They began arguing online, got to be friends, and then Kevin hired him to run this new site. Oh my gosh. And then and we we were good friends, so he, he recruited me to help him run it. So we did that for a good solid three years. And I was that's where I started my Comics 101 comics history column. Mm -hmm. And 
and we were doing that forever. And then after a few years, Chris gets recruited to be the new editor in chief at IDW. Nice. And so I'm like, okay, look, man, I'm not going to say hire me because I don't didn't look at that. But if Sutton comes along that you think I'd be a good fit for, give me a shot. And so he got some anthology horror books. I did a couple issues of that, and I liked it. It turned out it was fun to write those. And then they got the Angel license, and I I knew Angel enough to know that I think I could do that. Mm-hmm. So I pretended I was a gigantic Angel fan, and and. <laughs> And never doubt the quality of, of Wikipedia and a, and a good line of BS because I convinced him that I was an excellent fan of, of Angel and I got to write a lot of Angel stuff and then by the time I got done I was a fan once I actually went and watched everything to write the books but then they got the Star Trek license mm. and then I was like okay dude I'm, I'm serious this time I'm not saying just give me the job I know it doesn't work like that but just just open the door crack I'll get myself through that door if you just open it a bit and so he let me pitch for a, a Klingon series that they wanted to do and they were looking for an idea and I pitched them on a Klingon Rashomon where we took all the classic Captain Kirk episodes of Star Trek mm-hmm. and retold them all from the Klingon perspective. Oh, that's fantastic. They dug that and that was my first Star Trek series for them and then I had basically been writing Star Trek fairly steadily for them along with a bunch of other stuff for ever since then. So, and you do this with your brother, right, as you're co-writing. So, I find that fascinating because I know how that would end up if me and my brother were writing together. There'd be a moment of, Mom, he's taking all the good Picard lines is how that would go. So there's all kinds of questions that come to mind, so I'll keep it as sanitary as possible. What's the best and worst thing about co-writing with your brother? Well, the best thing is there is no worst thing. Aw, look at you. You're so nice. Oh, and that's that's me being completely honest because this is I'll be a lot harder by myself. What happened was I'd been writing the Angel stuff solo. When I got the Star Trek job, that first one, I call up my brother because we grew up watching Star Trek together and we I knew that we had very similar ideas about what makes a great Star Trek story. And so I said, look, I'm going to be calling you constantly, harassing you, picking your brain while I'm doing this anyway. Why don't you come in with it and write it with me? We'll try this one. And if you don't like it, you never have to do it again. Right. And we, we we started working together, and it just it, it clicked. The system evolved to the point where it's like right now, we just, we'll just we we'll plot a series together, and then we'll just kind of divvy up the page count and then just retire to separate corners, reach right a half, bring it together, and then boom, do like a polish on it, and it's good to go. That's fantastic. Do you find you can get more work done quicker than other writers because it's a, a two-person team, or do you still spend as much time on it? I'll probably still spend as much time on it. The, the real benefit, though, is that is oftentimes I'll get pages back with a surprise. Mm. Well, there's stuff I think of. Or he might have went in a different direction. The one I, the one I always remember is when we, were, we got to do the, the Doctor Who anniversary series. Mm-hmm. We got to write every Doctor. It was uh, Prisoners of Time? Is that what it's called? Prisoners of Time, exactly. Yep. Thank you. And so in the, the, the third Doctor story, uh, all of a sudden I get pages back and there's this big Richard Nixon sequence, which we never discussed. <laughs> And I'm like, this is great. Because, yeah, I just had to go for it. That's fantastic. So it just it's evolved in this great system. That's so cool. I, I got to say, I, I would not go anything like that with my own brother. So my hat is <laughs> off to both of you. So so we're talking about Star Trek. We're talking about Angel. We're talking about Doctor, all these things. I mean, you've gotten to do a whole bunch of expanded universe stuff, right? You get to play yeah. with other people's toys. Now, that I got to imagine, in some ways, it's amazing. In other ways, it's restrictive. So like, what are, what are some of the pros and cons of doing that? If there's anything restrictive about it, it's, it's the restrictions of each universe's own rules. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the biggest restriction of a Star Trek is uh, Roddenberry's utopian ideals, which kind of takes a lot of motivations off the table. Oh, okay. Why it was so fun to be able to write the Mirror Universe books the last couple of years, because you have, like, you know, people who can want things and steal things and hate each other and, and have ulterior motives. With Star Trek, you, you kind of really can't, because everyone needs to live up to the ideals that Roddenberry wants his characters mm-hmm. to live by. And you gotta respect that if you're writing Star Trek. But with Mirror 
universe, you could have more fun with it. Okay. But see, when we got to jump to Doctor Who, you know, because Star Trek is, is science fiction, whereas Doctor Who is, is more science fantasy. Mm-hmm. So we get to we'll have a, a lot more kind of lighthearted stuff and weirder stuff. Or, for example, when we did when we did Star Trek Planet of the Apes. Right. Which was so much I mean, so that, fun. It's so crazy when I saw that solicited. That was nuts. So that had to be an absolute blast. And and with that one, the most important thing to us was it had to feel like a Star Trek story, but it also it had to feel like Planet of the Apes. So you have to have the, uh, the idealism, but you also kind of have to have the nihilism that comes with, with Planet of the Apes. The, that nihilism of Planet of the Apes is just everywhere in those movies. I mean, each one has a darker and darker ending. Right. Dana Gould has the bit, you know, when the first movie ends with, with, with the famous bit with the, with the Statue of Liberty. Oh, sure. Sure. Second movie ends with Charlton Heston blowing up the planet. I was okay. going to say, yeah, the, the, the Earth gets destroyed sooner yeah. or later. One of those, right? Hard to get darker than that, except for in the third one where they just murder a baby on camera. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, making this stuff fit in with, with Star Trek was the challenge. And so what we always, what we did, with the kind of our way into it was we wanted to find a way to fix things that have always bothered us. And, mm-hmm. like, it always bothered me in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Well, they just show up in the 70s. That's not a time machine. It's a spaceship. <laughs> it's not at all a time machine. So finding a way to, to use the slingshot maneuver from Star Trek and some of the little odd wrinkles of Star Trek's version of time travel to make that part in Escape from Planet Apes make more sense, that was my way into the whole story. I wrote the whole story uh, to get to that last scene. And that's I think that's what got us the job, too. Okay. All right. Threading the needles there uh, with with all the different ideas. That's cool. And, and that's why I really love doing this stuff is, is, is finding ways to both accentuate the stuff about the likeness that I love and to kind of like fix some of the things that that yeah, that's always bothered me once fix that. So with the mirror universe stuff, you know, do you look around at stuff like, you know, like uh, Diane Duane did the Dark Mirror book years ago right, right, right. Next Gen. Do you guys look at that stuff or do you purposely avoid it when you're creating your stuff? Well, the the only way to, to possibly write for Star Trek comics and keep your sanity is you have to avoid everything that's not either on screen or on film. Mm. Not because the work's not good, but because there's so much of it. Sure. And so much of it is across purposes to even to each other. There are novels that contradict each other. There's no single through line. So you, the, the idea of having to pick one storyline that does work but but doesn't contradict with that one, at least, it, I mean, it's tough enough writing Star Trek because you have five series with, like, dozens and dozens and countless episodes of stories you can very easily not just contradict but maybe have been told better before. Yeah. So if you bring in the, the novels and, the, and all the other comics from other publishers into that equation, that way lies madness. So no. <laughs> Everything we do is just based on either the movies or the TV show. That makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you've already got hundreds if not what a thousand hours oh, right it, now. it, it, it should be brutal yeah oh, trying, trying to find like come up with a planet name that hasn't come up with before or a <laughs> friendly name and it's like alright back to memory alpha let's just start doing the deep dive research right stay away from memory, memory of beta whatever you do yeah. so, <laughs> that's how my books are <laughs> This is such a deeply nerdy conversation. <laughs> I love that we're completely in sync into what we're talking about. Too. Yeah. So are there, are there any franchises out there that you're dying to write for that you haven't got a chance to yet? It's, it's, I mean, and it's, it, it leans right into what we're we'll talking about today. I I grew up loving DC Comics, but the mm. problem is the DC Comics that I grew up with, not there's not good books from DC. There's plenty of good books from DC currently, but I love that continuity. Uh, right. I love that pre- to post-crisis continuity that went all the way up up 
the, the New 52, it had this sense of genealogy and history to it. The notion of like sidekicks taking up the mantle and uh, there were superheroes who had this, this distinct passing of the guard and that's all gone now. Right. So, I mean, if, if I could write for like for, for post-crisis DC, well, it might be all over it. <laughs> they just need another one of those convergence. Is what they exactly. Need. Yeah. Bring it all back. Just bring it all back in. Post-crisis is where I live, man. That's where yeah. my heart stays. No doubt about it. So, what are you working on nowadays, if you can tell us at all? Oh, there's a, uh, a few things in the works, but nothing at all that can be really discussed publicly. Uh, the, the, the next thing people can look for is my most recent series, Star Trek, The Q Conflict, which oh, was so, right. so much fun to do. That We did stuff in that one that is just so crazy. I can't believe that I was going to wait with it. Now, that one just wrapped up, right? Just wrapped up. And so, the, the collected edition, the trade, will be out, I think, early November. Perfect. Put yeah. that on your calendar, everyone. There you go. Awesome. Well, speaking of trades and collected editions like that, why don't we take a second to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the Justice League International Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we're going to select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. It usually has something to do with that month's issue of JLI or the guest or anything like, like that. I want to take a second to pimp a Star Trek Next Generation Mirror Broken trade paperback. It is drawn by J.K. Woodward. It's written by David Tipton and his uh, lesser-lighted brother. Uh, <laughs> did that. <laughs> Published by IDW. And Scott was telling us a little bit about it before there. Yes, this is the Mirror Universe version of the Next Generation. This is, if I'm right, this is the first collected edition, right, uh, of their adventures? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the book is gorgeous. It's a great story. It's 128 pages. Normally goes for $17.99. You can get on in-stock trades right now for 30% off. It's practically a steal for $12.59. You should definitely go check this out. If you love Next Generation and you love amazing artwork and you love all the Mirror Universe stuff, and every Star Trek fan does, you know you do, check out Star Trek Next Generation Mirror Broken. Now, Scott, the way this normally works, I ask the guests if they happen to borrow an in-stock trades recommendation. You're a comic pro. I don't expect you to have, but I'm just going to say all the other comic pros before you did, so it might be a little embarrassing around the water cooler. If you didn't, did you happen to bring something? Well, we do all hang out together, so yeah, I can't be embarrassed. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Recent book from IDW is They Called Us Enemy by George Takei of Star Trek fame. It's George Takei, co-written by Justin Isinger and Stephen Scott with beautiful art by Harmony Becker, and it's a memoir of, of George Takei's time in the internment camps during World War II for Japanese-Americans. I have seen this thing advertised. I haven't picked it up myself. I have every intention of it. I was actually took the time to talk to my daughter, uh, my 13-year-old daughter, about this book and because she, she just studied the Holocaust. And, wow, it looks incredibly powerful, and it's getting just amazing, amazing reviews yeah, from it's, everyone. Yeah, it's, it's really well done. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sensitive subject. And I think the, the best thing about it is, because it is a memoir and it's first person, and it's a first person perspective from someone that, even though we don't, we all feel like we know because we all grew up with them. Right. And so it's, so, it's very human when you read it. It's, you, you, you don't feel like this is a history book and you don't feel like it's somebody who has an ax to grind. It's not, it's not an angry memoir either. It's just what it was like being there. And, you know, with, with today's struggles with immigration, what's going on, it's very timely time to be, to be looking back at what's happened in the past and see how history can be in danger of repeating itself if you're not taking care of it. Yeah, exactly. If, if we don't study it, we, we'll be forgotten. So, yeah. And we'll happen again. So, yeah, folks, you can get this over on In Stock Trades. It's at 192 pages. Normally goes for $19.99. It is on sale for 30% off. It's only $13.99. Highly recommended uh, from just about everyone who's read it. So, definitely please pick up They Called Us Enemy. Uh, for these and all your tra- other trade 
paperback needs, please visit InStockTrains.com. Now, we are going to talk about Justice League America number 28 in just a second here, folks. We want you to join the discussion. Go out on social media. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast. You can also hit us up at uh, JLI Podcast on Twitter and such. Let us know what you think of this comic. Let us know what you think of those uh, collected editions we just talked about. Write your own fanfic and tell Scott how he got the Mirror Universe wrong. He wants to hear that kind of stuff from you. He loves that, right, I assume? That's what Twitter is for. It is a, it is a uh, wretched hive of scum and villainy on Twitter, folks, let me tell you. But uh, please, share in the conversation. You also go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and leave your comments there. That's where the majority of the conversation happens. So, uh, And this is all about building a community of online JLI fans. And since this show has started, uh, this community has grown by leaps and bounds. It's amazing how many people are involved and comment and share their love of this, of this comic. So, yeah, please, please join us. This is the part of the show where I am going to ask Scott some more questions because I haven't grilled him enough. Scott, could you please tell me, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you find the book? And like, what, what is it that made you fall in love with it? Well, I'm years old. So I put in a little... <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. And so I grew, up in, I grew up in the age of Super Friends. I grew up in the age of the Legion of Doom. And so it was the perfect time to be reading Justice League of America when I was a kid because it's, this was the satellite era. It was when George Perez was drawing the book, whenever uh, Jerry Connor was writing it, and it was the team. I mean, you had the Big Seven, and then the people you always think about with Justice League: you had Green Arrow, Black Canary, the Hawks, the Atom, Firestorm, Zatanna, Ralph Dibney, and so this to me was the Justice League. That was my favorite book. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't. It was Justice League Detroit, and Justice League Detroit was a tough pill to swallow. Step carefully there, sir. That's That was my entry point. A lot of love here for him. Okay, here's what I'll say. <laughs> you grew up with the Satellite League, and you get three inches of the robot vibe. It's like, oh, come on. Where's Hawkman? Something. And I was not a big fan. I think part of it, I wasn't a big fan of the way the Detroit era got started, where Aquaman just throws his big fit and disbands the league because everyone else is not committed enough. And then he quits like six months later. Right, right. <laughs> but, well, Mayor was pretty hot. I mean, admittedly, I understand why he ran away, but still. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Justice League Detroit's going on. I'm like, oh, I'm not, I'm not digging this. And then the crisis comes, and it's not quite sure really what's going to happen with the Justice League. And then that rolls right in the John Burns Legend series, mm. which introduces this new league. And for the time, considering the restraints that were on people because they couldn't use Superman, they couldn't use Wonder Woman, right. couldn't use Hawkman, all for like kind of nonsensical editorial reasons, some of which made sense, some didn't at all. This was the biggest you could have of a, of a Justice League at the time that was like arguably their biggest guns at DC because you had Batman on how they managed to keep Batman in there. I think Benny <laughs> O'Neill must have been asleep whenever they came in with the paperwork. I don't know. No. But you had, you had John Jones, you had Black Canary, so it still felt like old school Justice League. Guy Gardner was really the only Green Lantern to come out of the crisis, so he's, he is your Green Lantern, whether you liked him or not. And then you had big names like Dr. Fate and Captain Marvel, who had never been in the league. Right. And it was really exciting. And so, and when you free were that first year or so of the Giffen, the Mateus, uh, Maguire uh, Justice League, it's not a comedy yet. It's a much funnier action series than most others. But, and the book, as you snappy pattern dialogue is just 
from the very beginning is so great, but it's not as much as a comedy as it would become. It's still a big action book, and it was the most exciting that book had been for for years. And this is where I just I just jumped in with both feet. I, I loved everything about it, and then it just it was the the luck of having a brand new artist that no one had really seen before, a like Kevin McGuire, who was that good and who stayed for as long as he did that first couple of years. Right, and that from that point on, I was hooked. I had that giant Just League poster up on the wall where they're standing in front of the curtain. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love that class of '87. Oh yeah, yeah, that's the one. And so yeah, from that point on, I just and I, I stayed with that book through thick and thin. And when you think back at how how many spinoffs and side books there were, it really was DC's biggest hit at the time. Oh, it was unbelievable! Exploded because yeah. between the Europe's and the quarterlies and the specials and the side books, it was uh, it was there was nothing else in DC that was getting that kind of promotional push at the time. But it was because the work was so good and there was such a through line through the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, prior to that, it was really Superman and Batman who were known for having multiple books. Beyond that, nobody did. And oh. and for to, to turn Justice League, which had been around for years, into a sudden explosive franchise was just, that's all down to Giffen, DiMatteis, and McGuire. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. And uh, clearly, as you said, you stuck with it thick and thin. And so, it, and the series obviously went through a lot of good and a lot of bad over the years, I mean, undoubtedly. And I think that's going to lead us to an interesting discussion in this issue because yeah. this one's a little controversial. It's, this is the, by the way, folks, if you haven't figured out, this is uh, the Guy in Ice date issue that everybody remembers because it's hilarious. But when you look at it from a 2019 lens, there's some things to ask questions about in this one. It really is. So why don't we get into it, folks? Uh, again, uh, go out to our website. There we'll have an image gallery as well. So if you can't seem to find your copy of this issue, we'll have a couple of panels, a couple of the pages there for your reference uh, for what we're going to talk about. But this is Justice League America number 28 from DC Comics, cover dated July 1989. On the shelves, May 9th, 1989. Only one month away from the Batman 1989 movie. Can you believe that? Like there was a time in your life that the Batman movie hadn't been out? I mean, it's just crazy. Wow. <laughs> Cover price of 75 cents, three shiny quarters, and this is the last 75 cent issue. After this, the price increases to the exorbitant sum of a dollar. I, I tell you what, I refuse to pay a dollar for a comic. That's just too much. There's no it's way. It's an outrage! I tell you. Uh, and this covers by Kev McGuire and Joseph Rubenstein. Do you want to describe the cover for us, Scott? For one thing, brother, just just to mention, I think that the fact that even after McGuire left the book, he stayed on for covers so much, it really gave the whole series this, this sense of uh, continuity that was a big part of why it stayed so popular. Oh, I would agree. I, I always felt like that that same like the same character of the book remained. Yeah, well, covers. The covers what makes you pick it up without a doubt. Yeah. And the other thing that did back then that they were doing, I don't know if this was the editor's job as much or if it was all just a cover artist, but they had some really innovative cover treatments. And so with this one, you see them, you see Fire and Ice walking out of the adult theater where he's taking her for their date, and the masthead is on the marquee. That is absolutely brilliant. They, they even stretched out the logo to make it look like it's uh, up there with you know on the on the marquee. Yeah, pretty good stuff. Oh, yeah. So uh, uh, guys there in all in all green, this is one of the things I love. They, they were very careful, because they're in plain clothes, but guys in all green, and Ice is in all blue, and she's even got like the Valentine hearts in her arms there like you would on a date sort of thing. So it's you can see they're plain clothes, but there's no doubt about who they really are so i love that part about it the marquee is just brilliant with a you know starring guy gardner and ice maiden you know it's a production it's just super fun and there's lots of little things in here like another you talk about the cover treatment another brilliant thing is this is the first time i can remember seeing someone use the upc box to actually do something in this case yeah that's that's pretty smart yeah they've turned it into a trash can and on uh, now i i have the both the digital copy and my hard copy here the hard copy it's got my i got the upc code but the digital one you can see uh 
it says trash toss it here instead of you know usually they'd have like the JLI logo or you know who watches the Watchmen or whatever so yeah turning it into a trash can is brilliant and then there's all the background stuff all and everyone has different word balloons like the little guy complaining has a yellow word balloon the other guy's got a blue one and a green one which is really neat now interesting there's there's a guy here in the front right who he's he's heavy set his shirt is is slipping up he's got a Batman shirt on of course he does because it's 1989 and he's opening something and I had always heard that this was supposed to be Mike Carlin and it, it, it looks a little bit like Mike Carlin. It does look like Mike Carlin. Yeah. So I actually reached out to Kevin McGuire and he's like, nope, not not the case. And I asked what he is trying to open there because I couldn't tell. And uh, <laughs> Kevin says it's a chip witch. Which yeah, I that, that's a chip witch, all right. <laughs> I couldn't figure that out. Crack me up. I just pulled it up as you were discussing it just to take a look at it again. And you know that moment in Ratatouille where, where the, the critic bites the, the dish and has the flashback to his childhood? I actually haven't seen Ratatouille. Okay, it, wait, it's, it's, a, it's a great moment where, where he, he tastes the dish and all of a sudden he has a sudden flash to when he was six years old. Oh, wow. I pulled this up and I realized... It was never, and I mean never, as ill-fitting as we're seeing here, but I have that exact Batman t-shirt. <laughs> that was a specific Batman t-shirt that was being sold at the time, and I just realized, yeah, I had that shirt. <laughs> it's Batman running out towards you, like coming yeah. out of the thing, and above him is yeah. a big yellow. Is that a moon, or is that It's a big moon? yellow moon, and I think there's a, if I recall, there's like a faint bat signal on it. Okay, yeah. I, yeah. It looks very oh, I totally had it. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> And, and my cover, by the way, I do have to brag, is marred with this black ink, uh, which is the signature of Ty Templeton, when I got oh, to talk nice. with him at Heroes Con uh, in 2017. So, Well, the cover is absolutely hilarious, but let's get into the issue here. So, uh, plot and presumably breakdowns by Keith Giffen. It's got to be, based on the way it's, it doesn't say it, but boy, wait, the way it's laid out, it's got to be Giffen. Script by J.M.D. Mateus. Penciler is Ty Templeton for a whopping four pages, pages one through three and 22. And then Mike McCone did pages four through 21, basically the internal guts there. Inks by Joe Robinson, uh, letter is Albert Tobias de Guzman, colorist is Gene D'Angelo, editors Kevin Dooley, and the editor, sorry, the assistant editors Kevin Dooley, and the editors Andy Helfer. Name of the issue is a date with density, which is hilarious. That's got to be a Back to the Future riff. Uh, do you want to give us the recap for these yeah, first I'll, half? Yeah, I'll pick it up. We, this issue is taking place just after the events of the last big crossover event at DC, which was the invasion. And so um, our story opens up with uh, fire in bed, still recovering from the effects of this big gene bomb thing that it was really explained all well in the issues. <laughs> so it's not like if you read this and you were confused, you were much better off than people who'd been reading Invasion. But uh, towards the, the end of Invasion, this gene bomb went off and activated people's metagenes if they had one. So either some people who didn't have powers would have powers, and some people with powers would get more or weird or, or different powers. And that's what's happened to, to Fire, but we, they're not telling us what's happened yet. And so after a bit of affectionate banter between Fire and Oberon, we cut to a scene of Guy Gardner and he's in Times Square just smashing up adult theaters and bookstores. And you get a bit of, a, of his of his dialogue. Of, it's uh, very much he's uh, destroying the smut uh, the smut peddlers and the fleshmongers and just like Uncle Ronnie would want him to. It's uh, this is his, this is uh, him in his big Reagan loving face. Oh, yeah. He's like actually like the second or third knock on the head that would change his personality back and forth. <laughs> and so then we cut back to the embassy where they're covering his I guess that would be illegal mayhem on the news and uh, we see him uh, talking to Ice and they begin to bicker and somehow it winds up with the guy asking her on a date and she accepts. Um, after a bit of a warning what would you call it? Some concern from Fire and Oberon about the idea of... That's a subtle way to put it, yeah. Yeah, of, of Ice going out, going out with Guy. Uh, we see them go off on their date and he's taking her to one of the adult theaters that he didn't destroy earlier that day, which is 
weird. I mean, it kind of points out the problem with this is that, you know, guy has mental problems because he's destroying these things in the morning and then like buying a ticket at night. He, he needs to be checked on. Some, this, there's, there's a whole dynamic here that is, I never really realized before that they really need to be helping out Guy more than they do. He's yes. got he's some problems. But anyway, so they're, they're there on the on the date. She's shocked and disgusted and wants no part of it. And then we also cut inside to find out that this place is owned by a mysterious retired supervillain who is not at all happy to find out that there are two Justice Leaguers on a date bicker, bickering in his lobby. And so, meanwhile, down below, uh, Ice is marching out and sensed that the idea of going in here. Guy is following her out the door as they continue to argue. All right, I'll take it from there. So they get into the alley, and Guy and Ice find themselves facing the boss uh, of the adult theater, who is the man with the phobia about superheroes. He's there in full costume, and he's none other than the Black Hand. Now, before Black Hand can even finish threatening our heroes, Guy blasts the villain out of the alley. Guy and Ice refuse to take this guy seriously. Uh, They're more interested in arguing with each other about this doomed first date and being ignored just absolutely infuriates the black ham and the villain threatens them with this weird little device it's like a gun completely fed up ice just tells him so she says and this is a quote shoot his silly old gun and get this over with she has had it with this so the device hilariously fizzles and does nothing proving just how ineffectual black hand is at his villainy black hand then comes completely unhinged about and, and is sort of muttering about his therapist and eventually shoots a real handgun at our hero skimming the top of guy's head guy ends up pummeling him into unconsciousness even though black hand's trying to surrender the whole time and ice just feels sorry for the black hand deciding that he's clearly mentally disturbed and needs help. You know, sort of ironic. She's worried about Black Hand, but not Guy. Anyway, uh, back at the embassy, Ice is disgusted with Guy and the whole horrible date. Uh, and she just goes up to have a bath and she's going to scrub for a week to try and get this off of her. And then around the same time, Big Barda arrives, insisting that Fire has to start training with her new powers. And the issue ends with, with this full-page splash. It's mysterious, bright green light is flashing. Uh, Big Barda trying to uh, st- stretch away from the bright light. It's shocking her and she's saying, holy moly! And that's how it ends with a big mystery. It says, next issue, more on the mystery behind Fawash, which was the green light, and the return of Dr. Fate, well, Naboo, well, Kent Nelson, and the journey into the mind of the Blue Beetle, such as it is. And that is the issue. Wow. A lot to unpack here. Scott, why don't you kind of go through your notes first, and then I'll just jump in there. First off, from reading this from today's perspective, with talk of decompressed storytelling, this is some seriously decompressed storytelling. Far before guys like Bendis were doing it, because almost nothing happens in this issue, really. It's all mood. It's all character. And what struck me, too, is, I haven't read this in a while, it's less funny than most as far as the comedy goes. I mean, there, there's the overall, boy, this, this is wacky with the with the bad date, but in terms of, like, the dialogue, in terms of what I always loved about, about Justice League with the with the, the snappy patter and the back and forth, and I don't know, I, I think the subject matter is kind of making them pull back on that because it doesn't feel quite right. I'm surprised even that the, the notion of using a, a, an adult theater was ever even a greenlit back then. Right. I mean, this is this has got the comics code stamp on the front, so that was yeah. pretty surprising. And you've got they've, they've got like you know there are naked ushers inside the, the theater, and you know they're all tastefully covered by word balloons. So right. There's no issues there, but still, it's surprisingly I wouldn't say racy, but it's surprisingly mature stuff for what they were doing in the DC mainstream book at the time. Yeah, I mean, a little kid who picks this up who's you know anywhere from eight to twelve years old might not even know these kind of theaters exist. Right. So, right. Yeah. Now I want to address 
address the humor thing a little bit because uh, I was talking with a guy. I, I was at Boston Fan Expo and hanging out with one of our buddies, a guy named by the name of Ward Hill Terry. Nice guy. And he was telling me that this issue, he doesn't think it's funny at all and how it's horrible and the way the guy acts is completely unforgivable and the issue's not funny at all. And I, I definitely agree with him about Guy and because Guy's actions are completely deplorable. They're, they're completely irredeemable, pun intended there, by the way. However, so if you step away from that and think, okay, these two are fictional characters and you look past some of this, you can sort of still see in this the funny and, and Ben Kenobi might say from a certain point of view. You, you have to view the issue through the lens of shock value. It's it, it like the comic is so horrible. The things that guys doing are so horrible. You're almost like covering your eyes from embarrassment and horror, but you're still peeking through the fingers, going, "Oh my god, I can't believe that what guy is actually doing. What's he going to do next?" And that that's really for me where the humor comes from. It's it's like a Howard Stern moment or something. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of a precursor to what you saw being very popular in the '90s with Seinfeld, which was I would call it, it was the theater of the uncomfortable. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's that. what this is like. It's like you know, the, the 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 comedy in Seinfeld came from these people who you who were appealing, but just being really awful people and doing horrible things to each other and everyone around them. And this is kind of what we have here. It's like this, it just it makes me uncomfortable. And there's a tension that comes from that with the comedy. I can see that. Now I will not debate you, but I will point out there is some funny banter in this. Now not there's much as you're right because like it was issue oh, I can't remember now it was one of the issues when they're on Apocalypse. We actually counted there was like 17 jokes in the first 10 pages or something yeah. like that. It was amazing. In this one, there's not a lot, but the best snappy banner throughout the whole issue comes from Ice. She is hilarious in this thing. You know, a guy's bragging about how uh, taking down all these buildings. He's like, I'm going to take you out in the town. She says, I hope you and your imagination have a very nice evening, which is just <laughs> great. Very brilliant. For, for me, a lot of the, of the funniest stuff is, is the interplay between Oberon and, and Fire. That's some good stuff, too. No doubt yeah. about that. I think I clearly heard this because they're both likable people. And so I think for, for me, that's where it's kind of the, the dialogue is given a chance to actually shine because you're not you're not so horrified at what's going on. Well, they've been flirting a little bit here and there leading up to this, but yeah, it's full on. I mean, she's pretty much telling him, hey, you got a shot with me, is what yeah. she's saying throughout this, which is why I always wanted that to be a thing. I always really wanted them to, 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 to go further with that and make that a, a full on storyline with the, the, two, the two of them getting together because it was just, it was Oberon, when he first came in this book, because I, I hadn't really read all the Kirby stuff when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I wasn't familiar with Oberon at all. So at first I was like, who is this weird guy? <laughs> and and uh, Gifford and Demetrius, and I think also McGuire with his facility for facial expressions and acting, they just made you fall in love with him. Yeah. I think of Oberon as being more justly guy than I do of him being a Mr. Miracle sidekick. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm the same way. I, he, that's where I met him first, too, was in Justice League. And he's like, you know, he's like your surly uncle that you just love. You know, that's yeah. fun to hang out with, but you know he's going to, you know, it's, it's almost like he should have like a cigar hanging out his mouth or something yeah. kind of thing is what you imagine. Yeah. As far as them and getting together, uh, Oberon and Fire, I think the only time it ever happened, like finally, was in some of those Armageddon 2001 annuals, which were, you know, just possible futures anyway. And that's a real shame. Oh, that's right. They might have done that. Yeah. See, I can't dig that stuff out. But it's but it was a possible future. So it yeah. you know it didn't really happen, if you will. Let's see. So all right, let's let's talk about some of the, the more disturbing stuff here, like the, the therapist jokes, all right? Because there's a whole bunch of those throughout this where Black Hand is constantly talking about his therapist and he's talking about his depression. And you know, the jokes, when you read them, they're pretty funny. You know, they're they're poking fun at him, he's being funny about it. But then you start wondering about it from like a modern sensibility from the, you know, the 2019 lens. And it's like, and it's just really a question more than anything. Are the jokes out of line? Because is this issue just mocking folks in the eighties that were trying to get in touch with their feelings? Or uh, would we say nowadays that these are people with uh, a mental illness and depression, you know, it's, or is it just simply harmless jokes? I don't really know. It's, it's a, it's a question to ask. Well, I think what you're seeing kind of partly is this is at the point in time in like in culture where 
where the notion of therapy and, and psychiatry being a more common thing and not something that only crazy people did was just starting to hit the zeitgeist. It was hit the comics and TV and movies to the point where, like, you know, in another 15 years, you could do stuff like The Sopranos, mm-hmm. where, it, where the whole point is, is is you're having fun with the idea of a gangster going to get help, which is what we have here. And I don't think it's being done, even here, it's not really, it's not being done in a negative way. I mean, his, his guys aren't really, like, uh, harassing him for the fact that he's, he's seeing, he's getting help and seeing people. I think this was just so unusual at the time that no one was doing, there was no one else at DC doing stuff like this with, with any of the characters right yeah I think you're I think you're right I, that's fair I don't think there's any malicious intent in in the writing so if someone were bothered by it I could see why they might be but I don't think the writers intend anything maliciously so that's fair yeah yeah and I think it helps that they, they start off with this guy pretty good at the beginning with the speech he makes he's like you know about why he retires from being a villain he's like I never got the money I never got the babes I got broke bones and jail sentences and so you, <laughs> you start off with him and he's like okay this guy's actually kind of a he's a realist right, exactly. and so but as, as he can it starts to like go down the path of, of being a little bit more squirrely as he gets worried and you start, they start him off well enough you kind of like him for himself to go on well he's sort of like that you know we, we always at some point every comic fan has said why does Lex Luthor build a million dollar robot to steal a hundred thousand dollars it's, and it's that kind of philosophy of like it's the supervillain who said looked around and went this isn't working yeah. and found a different line of work so. but, see, but, that, but that Luthor argument for me always made perfect sense that of course you build a million dollar robot because it's not about the thing it's about the pursuit of the thing that's true and i love i love i love that period of luther in like the 60s whenever he wouldn't even bother changing out of his prison graves when he'd break out of jail <laughs> he would just leave them on it's like look they're comfy they're in my size i'm gonna get in my death machine and go kill superman and then if it doesn't work i'm gonna go back to jail because because i hear it's like it should be for gravy night you know cause <laughs> jail was just a place to go chill out in between ice for luther <laughs> That is a different perspective on it that I hadn't considered. I like that. <laughs> now, we, we talked about therapist, and and you brought up a point earlier in your recap about Guy Gardner needing help. He really does. I mean, this is a guy whose who's, uh, personality changes radically with blows to the head. Right. And you never see them trying to get him some help for it. And, they, and even here, he's 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 a dichotomy where he's being this, this kind of uh, right-wing anti-pornography crusader by destroying these buildings. And then he's like, yeah, two tickets in the front row and no one says hey what is the matter with you maybe you shouldn't have the most powerful weapon in the universe on your hand <laughs> with all the bonks in the head I don't think they ever even sent him to the doctor once not once no they left him under, they left him under the sink if I recall with a mouth right, right. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh it's so awful it's hilarious. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I guess that's part of why it works as a joke. Let's see. Uh, before we start talking about the art, I did have one or two more things I want to talk about. So Guy Gardner taking down three buildings and then the city management is happy about this. Yeah, that was strange. Wow. It really is the era of Reaganomics, I guess, isn't it? Wow. I also have to wonder because you know, this is a this is a time back in the day whenever DC was so entrenched in New York. And this was about the period where Times Square was beginning to see this kind of renovation. Where they were tearing out all these things, and all of a sudden they're moving into Disney stores, into TGI Fridays, and trying to renovate Times Square into being a more touristy area. So I, I kind of have to wonder if what we're seeing here is a reaction to the, the, the DC guys, what they're seeing every day. That's fair. Yeah, over in their building that starts with 666. A little creepy, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the marquee, it says Ice Maiden uh, on the front. And then inside, B gets called Flame a few times. So it's almost like they slip back into their old code names in this issue, which I don't know what that was about. Why? It, it, I don't really have anything to discuss on it other than it's an observation that they're still being called Ice Maiden and Green Flame rather than Ice and Fire. Yeah, I think that I kind of have 
happened around about the time uh, they started doing those big who's who binders. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of when they officially changed it to Fire and Ice. And I think what we're seeing here is just kind of like they hadn't quite pulled the trigger on it yet and it's out of habit. Sometimes they're still using Ice Maiden. Could very well I, be. Could yeah. Very well. Who's Who has a special place in my heart. We do a podcast on that, the Who's Who podcast. So I, yeah. I love those binders. We're going through them right those now are, on the show. Those are great. Oh, man. Such so amazing great. art. And I mean, the original series, too, not to digress, but the, the original series, too, had such amazing art where they would get the most unusual people to come in. You get Dave Stevens to come in yes. of Rocketeer fame and do Catwoman. <laughs> Uh, oddly enough, that's uh, one of the entries that every young man remembers. So, yep, that's imagine amazing, that. Amazing piece of art. Yeah, we've uh, we've been covering Who's Who starting from the very first issue of the original series, just moving forward issue by issue, and now we're into the Binder series, and we're just loving every minute. I've been doing it for years. Um, so one thing this leaves me wondering is, after this issue, how the hell did Guy and Ice ever get together for real? That's, I mean, this is horrid. This is absolutely horrid. This is worse than the worst sitcom date. Uh, th- there can't be any coming back from this, and I don't remember how they ended up together and it's i can't believe that could ever happen i mean again i think it mostly just happened because this one issue kind of put them together as a kind of romantic uh, couple even though it went so badly yeah. and it just kind of remained in people's heads until down the road a ways whenever they want to do anything romantic with either of these characters by default they would just go back to guy and ice i guess so i don't know i'll be interested to see how this explores and grows because I, I mean obviously i've read all these i just don't remember it's been so i don't either years, but so. it makes no sense at all i mean <laughs> there, there there was there is like you said there is no coming back from this right exactly i mean i've had some bad first days but nothing like this this is crazy the one thing that was always struck me as weird of this issue is whenever uh he first comes to pick her up and she makes fun of his suit it's not that bad a suit but that's one of the best again you talked about the snappy banners that is one of the best lines because he said he goes he makes a joke he goes that was a joke and she says so is that suit which is freaking hilarious i love that line if it was a bad suit maybe but i mean the guy like the collar is a bit 70s but otherwise it's a single collar there's no print it's not it's not the worst suit in the world he didn't show up with like crazy quilt or anything well it's 89 right so like you said it's 1989 he's got the 70s collar he's got it buttoned down all the way to practically like his navel almost and you can see there's like there's some sort of gold chain hanging yeah, in the middle that's, there the gold, the gold medallion might be might be the thing that, yeah. that doesn't end you're right <laughs> so, he, it's a little much it's a little much now we started talking about the art so let's do that so we've got a little bit of uh, a lot of McCone sandwiched by some Templeton so what do you think of the art in this issue um, this kind of uh, highlights what was always the one bad thing about the fact that JLI had such great artists most of the time that when they would step back to somebody who was only kind of okay, it would just seem like a huge drop. Because mm, okay. you start off with these amazing Ty Templeton pages, and then uh, McCone stuff is just it just feels pedestrian. Oh, you really okay? Yeah, I think it starts strong. Like when a uh, guy is jackhammering away at the buildings, and you get the next couple of pages of guy's face. I like. I really think those look nice. In fact, a guy's face on page four really looks like a burn version of guy to me. It almost looks like that he was inspired by the stuff in Legends. That version of the guy. But yeah, as you keep going, you're right. It it ranges from those amazing pages to really not good pages on page six. Yeah. One of the things though, I do want to say is uh, part of the inconsistency I got to imagine is because this is only Mike McCone's second published work ever, if you can believe that or not. So he goes from just stepping into the industry to putting them on their top selling book, which is shocking that they had that much faith in him at this point. Yeah. And that, that's fair. And I think, I, I think it's also unfair to guys, these guys, when you put them in the same pages with guys like they would have when the other one who would drop and we add, Hughes, and you would get full interior pages from Adam Hughes, and be gorgeous. Right, and not just from a pinup standpoint. Nobody does better acting and expressions than McGuire and Hughes in 
Templeton. Right. So I mean, somebody who's who's where that's not their forte, where they're, they're the thing they're best at, it's obviously going to suffer by comparison. Well, I, we were chatting with uh, Ty Templeton at Boston Fan Expo just a couple weeks ago, and during the conversation, uh, we were talking about the podcast in this particular issue, and mentioned, and he just off the cuff, I got to get more details from him, but he said that the reason there was a fill-in for this issue is so that he could take a vacation. Oh, which is well, that's really nice that they did that. Um, no, it's, it's it's fair, but that but that makes me think. Oh, imagine if this whole issue had been by Templeton. Oh. What could what could Templeton have done with with this with this guy and I stuff in the theater? Yeah, uh, that that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but it is a testament to McCone that this issue is so well remembered, though. Too. I mean, that's uh, that's true. Everybody remembers this issue. It's not one anyone forgets. Uh, I did like on page eleven, and I didn't notice this till the second time reading it. Ice has had enough. She is totally disgusted by Guy. She knocks him down, or you just see Guy go. I'm sorry. You actually just hear the noise of Guy getting knocked down. In the next panel, you see him on the ground. Well, I didn't notice the second time I'm reading, he's covered in chunks of ice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, just, I just figured she punched him, but now it's become clear she used her powers on him. In fact, there's little melted puddles on the, in a later panel, which I yeah. thought that was a really nice, subtle art move. That was very well done. Either a punch or she put the ice band style ramp ice underneath him or something to make him slip. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very subtly told there. Yeah. And McCone does do very good once Black Hand shows up. I mean, he looks very super heroic. There's a great three panel progression on page 15, just showing the expression of him being disappointed pointed, kind of absorbing it, and then getting pissed for being ignored. So I, yeah. I, there's there's a lot to love in here that McCone did. I, I think um, so. I, and like the, the, the hauling page, whenever he's got the handgun, he looks completely unhinged. Oh, yeah. So yeah, there, there, there's, there's more stuff there than I was giving credit for. I'll, that's fair. It, you know, it's a mixed bag, folks. There's some great pages, and there's some really not good pages in here. And uh, But overall, it's still a fantastic issue, and I absolutely love it. Uh, one more thing I want to talk about, too, is Ty Templeton does an amazing big barda. Oh, yeah. His, his Barta is spectacular. He did tell us uh, that Big Barta is his favorite member of the JLI. It's his favorite yeah. character to draw. In fact, I got a, I commissioned him to do a Big Barta sketch when we were in Boston. It's just absolutely oh, nice. stunning. Ah, yeah, great looking version of Barta. Barta. Barta is my girlfriend's favorite DC character. And uh, I had uh, I commissioned McGuire to do this amazing full color piece of Barta and Scott together. Aww. And it's, it's so good. It's, it's such a great piece. Oh, wait, yeah, Bar- so your girlfriend's favorite is Barta and Scott. That's awesome. That works Perfectly. Yeah. The last page here, whenever whenever she's reacting to the the flash with mm-hmm. the holy moly, that's probably my, my it's a quieter kind of funny, but that's kind of my 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 funny my pick for funniest moment of the issue. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, let's do that now, folks. We are about to tackle the Quahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the book. Obviously, Scott has just shared his. I'm going to pick mine, and we're going to go head-to-head and figure out which moment is the funniest. So tell us a little more here. So it's the last page, the splash page here of Barda. That you're saying that's your moment. Tell us why yeah. it's funny to you. Uh, first off, character-wise, I mean, Barda is this apocalyptian warrior goddess. And the way she was always characterized in the Kirby stuff is just, you know, the big and bombastic. And holy moly is such a kind of Billy Bats thing to say. And the way, yeah. the, the way this is what the lettering does, too, the lettering works into it. It's a tiny lettering in a, in a larger balloon to indicate that it's under her breath, and it just, it works so well with the image that it, every time it makes me chuckle. I get that. Alright, that works for me. Well, my suggestion is a different one. It's a combination of page 13 and 14. It is when the black hand shows up, and he pulls out his little gun device, and Ice has just had enough. And, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier. She goes, oh, for Pete's sake, let him shoot his silly old gun and get over with it. And, and black hand doesn't know what to do, and he's like, let, let him shoot? And so he does, and it just goes... 
you know, and they, and they basically walk away and they ignore him completely. I found that whole sequence freaking hilarious because there's a great build up to it. The shock of letting the supervillain do it, his failure. It, 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 I just felt like that was a huge build up and a great payoff. That was my blahaha suggestion. And now, it certainly helps that that is the least threatening supervillain weapon I've ever seen. <laughs> It's like he's holding a giant gel cap. Right, I was thinking like, uh, remember, oh gosh, this shows our age, but uh, the legs, uh, the pantyhose <laughs> container you he's get in the a, store. He's holding a pantyhose egg. Right, that's what it looks like to me. <laughs> <laughs> So now we got to decide, Scott, which one is the funniest moment of the book. Uh, well, yours, yours translates better, so I'll go with yours. <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm i not one to brag, but when a New York Times bestselling author says that the joke I picked is better, I think i got to agree with him. So <laughs> you, are, you are an authority on writing, sir, so I will go with that. <laughs> well, congratulations to Black Hand. You have won the Boahaha Award. Uh, please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. So... Now, before we wrap up here, Scott, I, I do got to point out, you know, this month I'm we are covering Justice League America number 28, and on the back half of this episode, I'm going to be speaking with another guest. We're going to be covering Justice League Europe number four, and as I was perusing that letter page, something jumped off the page in me. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It, said, it has these, uh, they used to do these things on letter columns where if they didn't print someone's full letter, they would just put a snippet of something, and there's some guy in here named Scott Tipton of Antonacci, California, who states, quote, the art is, and this talking about Justice League Europe. The art is absolutely fabulous. Sears does uh, just as an excellent job as McGuire did. He also draws the most gorgeous Wonder Woman I've ever seen, and I quote, Yowza! So, yes. um, <laughs> Yowza indicates I was reading Bloom County at the time. <laughs> so, sir, this is in fact you. Oh, yeah. I was, like I said, I was a massive letter hack back in the day. I was in the back pages of everything from Flash to Secret Origins to West Coast Avengers, you name it. Oh, that's fantastic. So, you loved Bart Sears' Wonder Woman. I, I bet you really enjoyed enjoyed that a whole bunch in Justice League Europe, huh? <laughs> exactly. The pages and, and well, that was it. <laughs> yeah, I think four panels or something like that. I, I need to count the panels at some point, but that was about it. And a cover. And a cover. So, <laughs> Well, all right. guess that's going to cover this issue. So, Scott, tell you what. Could you do me a favor? Since the Black Hand proved to be so incredibly ineffectual in this issue, and you're a comic pro, and you did say you all hang around the water cooler together, I was hoping you might be able to reach out to Jeff Johns for me and break the news to him that his big bad for Blackest Night is a complete joke. Um, just let him down gently, if you don't mind. I'm, I'm sure Jeff will make us all feel better with his giant pile of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Let me know how that goes. And while you're taking care of that, I am going to head over to the Paris Embassy, where we're going to cover the fourth issue of Justice League Europe right after this podcast promo break, and we will bring you back at the end of the show, Scott, so don't you worry. Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's for all mankind, a super friends podcast, a read through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run. Plus a few surprises hosted by me, Rob Kelly and a rotating group of my super friends coming soon from the fire and water podcast network. It all looks good to me. Monthly, monthly, monthly. It's Action Film Face Off. 
Hello, I'm Jason the Weasel Skull Albrick, and I'd like to tell you about a podcast I do with my brother, Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist. Action film face off! Yes, thank you, Jared. Action Film Face-Off is a podcast where my brother and I, who are both military combat vets... Jason was a Navy SEAL! Jason was not a Navy SEAL. Jason was a military intelligence wing. But anyway, in each episode of Action Film Face-Off, we select two different action films. Some of them have Chuck Norris! Technically speaking, none of them have had Chuck Norris yet, but it could happen because we use a randomizer set between 1970 and modern day to select our two films. So you'll always get two films, each from a different year. Our randomizer has spikes on it! We use a Google random number generator, so it does not have spikes on it. And we put the films into our Video Dome arena. It also has spikes! It does not have spikes. But we discuss the films and score them through six different rounds of criteria. I score Bond films very high! Okay, that's true. But anyway, by the end of the episode, we crown one of the action films the champion of action film face-off. Next episode, Jason fights a bear! Jason is not fighting a bear, but please give our show a listen. We're part of the Longbox Crusade Network of Shows. Pat Samson killed a man with a sword once. I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. But you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and most podcatchers under Longbox Crusade, or you can subscribe to just our show by searching for Action Film Face-Off. Come see the blood fly! And that's Action Film Face-Off. We do, indeed, invite you to come and see the blood fly. I just said that! And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number four. Folks, we are back from break, and I am here with our second co-host for this episode. This gentleman is an honest-to-goodness emergency room doctor. Seriously, I'm not kidding. Now, unlike Dr. Fate or Dr. Spectrum, this guy actually stuck it out and finished medical school. However, I gotta say, given his predilection for superheroes and his medical credentials, I'm a little bit disappointed he's not out running around at night protecting the streets disguised as Dr. Midnight. Just saying, maybe he's a little more like Dr. Lazy Nerd, maybe? Anyway, folks, please help me welcome to the show Dr. Ange. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Dr. Ange. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting. Very close to perfecting the blackout bomb so that, you know, <laughs> career as Dr. Midnight may be around the corner, but, you know, still have to work a little bit. You know, you've got that fallback position of the crime doctor, if necessary. Yeah, I suppose that, you know, it's always difficult. Are the heroes villains or the villains heroes at all? The, you know, in your story, you're always the hero. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, every other time we've ever recorded together, Ange, I've had to say, well, Ange and I have never met face-to-face. Well, folks, we now have. We hung out not too long ago at the Boston Fan Expo together, and I have to say, my life is now marked by before I met Ange and after I met Ange, and it's a whole different world for me now in my story. Yeah, you know, I have to say it was great. I consider you guys to be family, but it was actually so cool to talk to you guys and hang out and break bread and hug now and then and commiserate over comics and, and commissions. It was just a wonderful experience. Oh, I was referring to all the antibiotics I've been having to take since I met you. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, th- that other stuff was great, too. Yeah, I loved all that. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> No, I had a really great time, and it was so much fun, and we got to see Ty Templeton while we were there from Justice League International, and just lots and lots of awesome stuff. For me, it was cool. I got to see Steve Rude, and I Woo-hoo. waited in Mark Silvestri's line forever. And uh, <laughs> I can vouch for that. That was like, what, yes. three hours sunk in the Silvestri line? Probably over the course of two and a half days, but you know, eventually I got there, so it was all worth it. In the spirit of talking about Boston Fan Expo, I'll mention a couple of commissions I got. got a Ty Templeton commission. I'll tell you guys all about later, which was amazing. I also got a Blue Devil commission by Bill Wolko, and I got a Will Payton Starman, my beloved Will Payton Starman, by Scott Hanna, and that was so cool to talk to those guys. Oh my gosh. But it has nothing to do with Justice League, so we should probably, or at least Justice League Europe, so we should probably bring it down into it. So, Justice League Europe, number four is what we're going to be talking about here. Now, Ange, you have sort of an interesting perspective on this. When you and I started discussing bringing you on the show, you had a little bit of something to admit to me. So, why don't you tell us your personal origin story with the JLI, how you fell in love with it all those years ago and you've been a devout follower and you've read every issue and you just you mainline it right into your heart Tell me about how you fell in love with the JLI. I had to admit to you at the time when you were like, you totally have to come on and talk about this. I was like, you know, I actually didn't collect the book or read it at that time. So (laughs) So you're the perfect guest for this show. Wonderful. I know. It's sort of like, you know, what is your personal origin story? Uh, I don't have one. Um, So, uh, you know, the funny thing is, I'll say, is that I got the first issue of Justice League, you know, the want to make something of it issue. And when you look at DC during that time period, so much was coming out and so much of it was of high quality and I wasn't making a ton of money back then so something had to get cut and something had to stick around and so you know I was reading Captain Adam and I was reading The Suicide Squad and I was reading you know The Flash and I read that first Justice League and I was kind of like I don't know if this is kind of what I'm looking for I don't think I was stuck in the big seven but you know I did grow up in that Dick Dillon era and this was kind of like I didn't quite understand this roster and then when Justice League Europe came out mostly because there was no Supergirl at that time and Power Girl was probably about the closest I was going to come to Supergirl and also because I was reading Grant Morrison's Animal Man at that time I actually was more interested in Europe than in the main book so I actually bought Justice League Europe for longer probably about the first year but never really stuck with either of them I will say I was relatively blessed that one of my good friends at the time was really into Justice League was a huge Guy Gardner fan so I could kind of like thumb through his books and kind of get a flavor of what was happening in them but they're not in my collection and they still aren't <laughs> well, if uh, if your buddy's a diehard uh, Guy Gardner fan, I think that says a lot about him. Just saying. <laughs> no, I, I totally get it because I've said it a million times on the show before. I was buying Justice League Europe and not buying Justice League America. So I totally understand. And and, and you mentioned Supergirl. And you know, we, we didn't talk about that yet. We should. Ange is known far and wide on the internet as the number one Supergirl fan out there. He, he's got a blog called Comic Box Commentary where he reports on all kinds of activities with Supergirl. He's an active part of the Legion of Super. Super bloggers. I could get why this book might not be your cup of tea. There's no Legionnaires. There's no Supergirl. I mean, come on. Yeah. And at that point, Supergirl was
was like gone, like gone. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't like I was reading her somewhere else. But, you know, now that I think about it, this book is sort of like a distant cousin to the Legion of Superheroes because Keith Giffen, of course, was a big, big part of the Legion throughout the 80s. And this book is plotted by Giffen. So they're, they're sort of related. I'll give it to you. And I'll even say, you know, maybe there's a little bit of Laurel Gand in this Power Girl, right? Maybe she's sort of like a prototype of that. Ooh, that's nice. I kind of like that. That sort of works, doesn't it? Huh. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into the issue? Folks, this is Justice League Europe number four from DC Comics, cover dated July 1989, on the shelves May 30th, 1989. Cover price was 75 cents, only three shiny quarters. And the cover is by Bart Sears. So why don't you describe the cover for the folks at home? Well, you know, Queen Bee is standing over the fallen members of the Justice League in what appears to be almost like a sewer. And she's sort of, you know, scowling down at them and says, the name is Queen Queen Bee Boys, and I always get my men. And she totally is like the perfect femme fatale. She's in a tight-fitting, backless dress. She's wearing fishnets and high heels. She's got a cigarette and a very long cigarette holder. You know men in general will be in trouble around her. I mean, this is like Joan Bennett in Scarlet Street or Jane Greer in Out of the Past. Wait a minute. <laughs> Sorry. For a second, I thought I was on uh, Rob's Film and Water podcast. <laughs> Let's just say, as you would say, she's hot. <laughs> You're not wrong there. Uh, <laughs> Bart Sears has a way with a pencil and ladies, that's for certain. Uh, and men, for that matter, actually. So, yeah, one thing to note is, yeah, everyone who's... Oh, I was going to say Power Girl's not on the cover, but actually now I see she is. She's hidden by the word balloons. Yes, covered <laughs> by the word balloons, which I thought was funny. So this is sort of representative of what happens in the comic. I mean, there is a sewer scene, and they do Battle Queen B. This, this exact scene doesn't happen, but the spirit of it is there. I do love how Rocket Red has been tied up in like cords and cables and stuff and ropes and he's hanging upside down like a piece of meat like a slab I mean ugh horrifying and I like how elongated man is all stretched out throughout amongst the sewer it just it's really nicely composed piece and I like how her cigarette smoke is going out and wafting over the Justice League Europe uh, logo yeah you know it's interesting because you know as I was looking at this it's sort of like I don't know that she could have done this much damage so that's true. somebody else you know somebody else is there but she's the one that's in charge there's no doubt yeah Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's get into this. So inside, we've got plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus, penciler again is Bart Sears, as we've mentioned, inker is Pablo Marcos, letter is Albert de Guzman, colorist is Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor is Kevin Dooley, and the editor is Andy Helfer. You want to start us off? Sure. This book is titled Bialia Burning, and the issue starts out with a rather fetching queen bee spilling out of her shoulderless gown, lounging on a divan. The J.L. know that she's behind recent problems that they have been having and her thrall jack-o'-lantern is ready to attack them straight on but she's rather happy to discredit them as a team meanwhile buddy and Kara fly into bialia undercover as best as they can be both using and not using their code names in public to investigate the queen bee and figure out exactly what she's plotting they find the flash already in their hotel room ready to join in the fight but first wally has to make a ton and i mean a ton of inappropriate comments to power girl <laughs> Back in America, John chastises Captain Adam for sending the Justice League into Bialya on this mission. The League can hardly stand being in another international incident, but Adam downplays the risk, thinking that he understands all of it. We then see that Metamorpho is also present in Bialya and is reconnoitering the capital city as an odorless and colorless gas. He slips into the Queen's palace, only to discover that a dominator is working for the Queen Bee and has been amplifying the powers of her soldiers, including Jack-o'-lantern. Rex then slips away and reveals 
reveals all of this to his teammates. All right, I'll take it from here. So back in the New York Embassy, Maxwell Lord and Marsha Manhunter are willing to give Captain Adam's leadership choices the benefit of the doubt. Well, Oberon doesn't trust the chrome-plated captain at all. Then back in Bialya, while Owl Woman is getting a power upgrade from the Dominator, our heroes invade the Queen's Palace via the sewers. Ah, uh, ah, uh, get it? The cover of the sewers? Uh, a security camera picks up the JLE and Jack O'Lantern arrives to confront them in a great full-page splash. Then, using some surprising teamwork, our heroes take down Jack-O-Lantern, which is an improved performance over last issue, but not before the villain blasts through the surface, accidentally killing a Bialyan citizen. Then, using super speed, the JLE arrive in the Queen Bee's lab. Our heroes, having the upper hand, confront the Queen Bee herself. Suddenly, and this is weird, the story jumps forward to that night. We don't even get to see the resolution of what happens. And through the dialogue, we find out that rather than fighting, the JLE have blackmailed the Queen Bee. To prevent a possible international embarrassment for the Queen Bee, the JLE is willing to keep silent about the true nature of her kingdom. In exchange, the Queen Bee will leave the Justice League alone going forward. And one of the terms is that the Queen Bee will sever her ties with the Dominator, which she does by shooting him dead. Oh, yeah, she also had a jack-o'-lantern murdered for accidentally killing that Bialian citizen, too. Now, back in Paris, Catherine Corbert is flirting with Captain Adam, whoa, whoa, and Sapphire Stag, the estranged wife of Metamorpho, arrives in town intending to reunite with her husband. Next issue, Old Flames. Woof, all right. So, a lot happened this issue, and we got a huge resolution to a plot that has been going on for months throughout the Justice League books. What'd you think of this one, buddy? I actually liked it a ton. First of all, I can remember that Bart Sears' art was one of the reasons why I sort of stuck around with this pretty long Mm -hmm. and you know he really shines in this i know that you've had a discussion in the past about was it marky post or somebody else that he stylized power girl after that's just our suspicion marky post or maybe denise crosby but we have no verification of that whatsoever well i'm going to tell you as a robotech fan i look at some of these pictures (laughs) of her where she's sort of like undercover with that big bouffanti dollop of whipped cream blonde hair it could be dana sterling oh that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) anyone at home who has their dr Ange bingo card go ahead and check off that box uh, i will tell you dr Ange, that stella does not listen to this show so you, you scored no points this round <laughs> anyways you know getting back to this one of the things that i liked about this again i hadn't read this title or these issues in a long time and so i picked it up for this review is that you really get the sense that there is a continuity in this book even though it's only four issues in but also this intertwined continuity with the other justice league book because there are all of these as seen in recent issues of Justice League again, in this Justice League issue and last issue. So, you know, all of this, all of these prior Queen Bee plans, all of this, you know, Captain Adam's recent history of betraying the team and then maybe not betraying the team, all of those things I think really made this feel like a fleshed out, true continuity of the Justice League, which I don't think I appreciated back then when I dumped them, but probably, you know, or I totally appreciate it uh, now. Well, I, I really enjoyed a lot of that in here, especially the stuff with the Captain Adam, because I've talked about this before. Um, in fact, we did Martin Gray and I did a whole episode about Captain Adam's betrayal of the Justice League, where none of that, him you know, spying on the League, happens actually
actually in the Justice League book. It only happens in the Captain Atom series. None of it's even referenced in the JLA series. And this issue is actually the first time it ever comes up. I thought it was next month's issue, which is going to be an annual, but it turns out it's actually this is the issue where it first gets talked about in the comics because Maxwell Lord and Oberon talk about it. Oberon won't shut up about it. And it's just sort of interesting that it took this many months for it to finally make its way into the JLI comic book. And I'm glad it's all brought up here. And they also mentioned the annual because Captain Adam invaded Bialya uh, around this time period. He invaded a little while before this. And it, they made reference to it and made it part of the, the bigger world. Yeah. They also referenced Blue Beetle because over in JLI or JLA, you know, he's currently brainwashed right now and they're trying to deprogram him. And so they brought it up here as well. Yeah. It really sort of fleshed out. And of course, having listened to all of your prior episodes, there was this flavor that I sort of understood all of this. Uh, so it really kind of made this truly three-dimensional or a book with what felt to be true history. Yeah. Now, I also have to say that, and I'm probably like one of, count them on one hand, I am a fan of Jack-O-Lantern. And <laughs> uh, maybe not this Jack-O-Lantern because he's a villain, but my first encounter with him was in Super Friends number 37, believe it or not, Whoa. which is a book that guest starred Supergirl. That's really the only reason why I bought that Super Friends book. And back then, you may remember, they had these backup features, sort of like the Whatever Happened to in you know, DC Comics Presents, but it was origin stories or brief adventures of the Global Guardians who were being introduced there. Right. And so in that issue, it's Jack-O-Lantern who fights really a giant who's tromping all across Ireland. And so I knew him before these issues. And so I understood, oh, he's got that weird lantern. It, you know, he's got eyes. He can fly. So it was cool to see him here. I never got the sense in that Super Friends book that he was going to be able to kick the snot out of the Justice League. But he's one tough mother here, huh? Yeah, he's very tough here. Well, they, they amped up his powers. The Dominator amped up his power battery. So that's part of where that comes from. And now someone's going to immediately jump in the comments and correct me here. I'm not even sure if this is the same Jack-O-Lantern that was in the Super Friends stories. I, hmm. Well, there's been several of them. And I can't remember if this guy is the first one or the second one. The one I was most familiar with is actually an even later incarnation, the one that was part of the Primal Force team. You joked about people who can count them on one hand. I'm pretty sure I can count the number of fans of Primal Force on one finger. <laughs> so I, I love that Jack-O-Lantern. But yeah, so they ramped up his powers, which is a plot in this issue, too, because they're ramping up Owlwoman's powers right now. And I'm interested to see what happens because by the end of this issue, Owlwoman, you know, last time we saw her was still in that cocoon and the Dominator's dead. So I don't know what happened to her. I don't know if she made it or not. So hopefully we'll find out in subsequent issues. I, I really don't know because I haven't been reading ahead. So we'll find out. Yeah. And what did you think about him? You know, because it was strange. He definitely seemed to be subservient to Queen Bee, but he also has this hot temper and occasionally seems to do things that irk her. So he's not completely subservient. He calls her, you know, dame or lady, something like that, that bothers her and he keeps saying I'm going to do things my way and she keeps saying no I'm telling you right now you're not going to do it that way and you have to listen to me don't you and then he goes yes and so is it truly like mind control or is it that she seduced him or what is your take on that? Oh it's definitely mind control because there's a line in here and I, I only would have caught this because I think I've read this thing three times getting ready where he says something like you know your doctor's made sure of that you know and he says I don't have a choice so he's definitely been mentally programmed to love her and it gets mm. creepier because, I mean, the dialogue makes it pretty clear. He's her sex slave. <laughs> when she's looking for a little something-something, he has no choice. And that's a little creepy. So, yeah, I think it's there in the dialogue where they talk about the fact that he was programmed that way. And then it, it keeps going. You know, it's, you know, let's talk about Queen Bee for a minute here. Bart Sears draws her a really certain way. Like, it's interesting. She, she's obviously very sexy. You know, they, they, they really try and amplify that. We talked about You talked about the femme fatale look on the cover and everything like that. All of that's there, you know, with the hair and the body 
body and the fashion and, and all the accessories and all that. However, her face, Bart Sears specifically draws her face kind of rough. Now, he, now he's always drawn people a certain way, like his women character, people will say they look a little masculine, things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. He gives her some extra lines on her face, and I'm not sure if he's trying to make her look older or just look a little unattractive. Like maybe she's not necessarily a pretty person, but she, I don't know, maintains herself well, I guess. I don't know, I don't know quite how to explain that. But So do you have a take on that? Do you see what I'm talking about where he doesn't necessarily draw her as a beautiful, like her face beautifully? Yeah, I totally see her as being some, uh, like a woman who's either in her late 30s or early 40s is how I look at it. Because you're right, there's, in every panel, she's got crow's feet or tiny little wrinkles here or there that makes her, she's still, in my mind, beautiful, but she's she's not Power Girl's age, right? When you look at Power Girl's face, there are none of those extra lines there, right. which makes me sort of think that she has cultivated all of her natural seduction powers, right? She's now sort of in, like, uh, she's a little bit older, so she knows how to do all of that, but maybe she needs a little bit of a boost now because she's starting to um, sort of get a little bit older. Not that 40 is old. Look, trust me as somebody who's well past that. Um, <laughs> I was thinking but, late uh, 40s, early 50s is where I was going with it. But yeah, yeah, you know, it, it very well could be that. But I always just looked at it not so much that she's young and, and harsh in that she's just experienced is maybe the, the word I'm looking for. There you go. And how does she walk in that skirt? Because it is, it's a, it's a long skirt. It goes uh, halfway, down, let's see, about halfway down the calf, I think. Uh, I'm trying to find a yeah. place where she's walking. Yeah. It goes about halfway down the calf and it is so tight. Like her legs are pretty much bound together. Like I think she could probably walk an inch at a time. It's it's ludicrous how tight Bart Sears draws that skirt. I mean, it's gorgeous and sexy as we said, but in practicality, unless it's made of elastic, completely elastic, I yeah. don't see how she can even walk. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's like the white shirted Supergirl with the belly shirt who's yeah. wearing a pencil skirt oh, that right. is always like, there is just no way that she can like walk easily in that or how does she even fly? So, right. uh, so I get it. Yeah. And then uh, the last big thing I want to bring up about Queen Bee is like, this is this is a big deal here because they wrap up her storyline here. Uh, I, I didn't even believe it at first, but I went ahead and checked just on like a couple of databases and stuff like that. They don't we don't see the Queen Bee again for a very long time. And this has been a dangling plot thread since like Justice League International number like, f- I think, 16 or something like that's when she got introduced somewhere in that range. So she's been out there as a threat for the JLI for a long time. And the JLE are the ones who take care of it. That's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, again, for somebody like me who kind of was like, you know, hit or miss in these issues, you read this, and I said, oh, my God, she's definitely going to be coming back because she's so ruthless, and she doesn't seem like somebody that forgives people easily for, like, uh, derailing her plans. Right. So, you know, she kills Jack-O-Lantern, her number one enforcer, and she kills the Dominator who's in charge of her plans on, like, you know, amplifying the powers of these people. I go, I can't imagine she's not going to be out for revenge. So when, again, I did a little bit of research as well, and you find out that she wasn't there for a long, long time or didn't come back for a long, long time, you go, it makes this victory even more impressive because she doesn't seem like somebody who who takes those things lightly. Yeah, she's totally nasty. You're right. I mean, there's murder after murder after murder. It's like, oh. Now, the, the only thing I'll give to her credit was that the reason she kills Jack-O-Lantern is because he accidentally killed a Bialian citizen. And so she actually kills him out of, like, a sense of patriotism, you know, for her for her people which is or, or uh, maybe a sense of responsibility for her people so I thought wow that's sort of an admirable trait kind of 
Something in her favor, I suppose. Yep. She's the hero in her own story. There you go. I heard that somewhere. Someone someone wise <laughs> said that. I think I read it in a book. <laughs> well, you know, the only other thing I really wanted to comment on was, as somebody who was reading, like, the Mike Barron and then the Messner Loeb's Flash comic, and even in that comic, Wally was kind of like, you know, he didn't necessarily want to settle down immediately. There was no Linda. He was kind of going through the girl of the month. Right. He's pretty creepy here. This is like hashtag me too sort of uncomfortable for me to read. I don't know how you felt. Yeah, he goes too far. He really does. I feel like this issue might actually be a little less offensive than the previous ones. I don't know. But they're... Alright, so I, I, let's let's run through some of the comments here. Like at one point, they Buddy and and Kara are going in, in, into this suite and they say it's the honeymoon suite. You know, Wally's like, can I get into the honeymoon action? And then he offers to help Power Girl change her costume. He says if she's got time to kill he's got some interesting ideas he hits on similarly on queen bee he hits on an airline stewardess he really is pretty horrible uh, incorrigible and he's crossing the line without a doubt because she, clearly power girl is disgusted by his comments if she was sort of like half flirting back with him or laughing about it it might be different so let's for sake of comparison let's look at maybe the way blue beetle and booster gold interact with fire and ice versus the way wally interacts with power girl and i'll talk first and you chime in here or, or whatever but like you know it seems to me that beetle and booster definitely flirt with the female members of the team but they don't cross the line and the girls don't seem disgusted by them either they're just like oh guys knock it off kind of thing like oh whatever or they laugh about it or you wish or whatever whereas here power girl has definitely like laid down the line saying it's not happening and yet wally won't stop so while you could write off his comments as being joking they they really do seem to go too far yeah you know for me i kind of look at booster and and beetle as sort of just doofuses and harmless in a way that i think that if ice and fire said we really want you to stop it they'd be like okay yeah but but flash he kind of seems almost like a little bit more misogynistic about it as if to say there's really only one thing that that he values in a woman and that's them having sex with mm. him and, you know and there's really nothing else right he doesn't talk about you know hey power girl like great save in that sewer right or anything the, the only thing he talks about is that and so as a result it just seems to be a little bit more single-minded and as a result it just strikes me the wrong way there's just not any other thing that he talks about and as a result and it's really you know it's kind of oafish uh, boorish the way that uh, he comes off and so as somebody who read the Wally book I kind of didn't like the way he was portrayed in this book yeah and, and well he does talk about one other thing and that's money but uh, mm. yeah it's sort of like if, if Beetle and Booster were hitting on fire in that way and fire said okay sure boys they wouldn't know what to do with themselves they'd be like oh uh, what what we were just goofing around whereas here with Wally if Power Girl were to say sure Wally I think he would welcome that yeah and, and then part of me's torn because then like I read some of these goofy lines where he's saying like hey can I help you out of that outfit and I think oh I say that to my wife all the time but the <laughs> difference there is that my wife and I have a mutual relationship where we're in this together and so it's it's not I mean, yeah it's skeevy because I'm a guy let's face it we're all that way but it's it's I'm not harassing her right maybe that's the best word this seems like harassment it does you know it does. Uh, and, and that's probably 
probably uh, the best term for it. Yeah, so ugh, inappropriate, uncomfortable, and hopefully it gets better. I've seen some people in the comments say that it does, and they develop this nice mutual respect. I hope we get there, So, because we're not there yet. And, and the thing is, Wally is one of my favorite characters of all time. And it all comes from, it stems at least, it began with the Mark Wade run, is where I really fell in love with Wally, but I need to have that same warm fuzzy, and I don't have it yet. Hmm. Something that's worth noticing as well, this whole plot, right? This whole plot with Queen Bee. This is the end of issue four. Started with issue one, where she killed the, or she had the, the, the not, former Nazi assassinated. He fell into the embassy in the beginning, which led them to investigate the Global Guardians, which led them here to Bayalia. All this was tied together, right? All starts with this guy collapsing on the floor of the JLE embassy, and he says the word braces. And that was their clue. Now, here we are, the conclusion of the story. Uh, what does that mean? Huh? I got nothing. Yeah. I got nothing on this. So if I've dropped the ball here, folks, write something in the comments. If 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 braces was explained and how this led everywhere, I'd love to know because I don't remember it, and I think it's a dangling plot thread that they lost lost the connection <laughs> to somewhere. Well, I hope somebody can explain it because because I'm lost. Yes, excellent. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone. I usually am lost. I mean, it's kind of a state of being with me. So I did notice a couple more things about the cover I want to talk about because I keep getting attracted to it. Because the more I look at this, I really love this cover. I it's it's so striking. The queen bee is dominating the whole thing. She's in complete control. That I didn't even take the time to notice other things. Like before, I mentioned I didn't see Power Girl in there. It's because it, there's so much you know the eyes drawn. So another thing to notice here: check out the backgrounds. This the detail on the sewers is really really impressive. I mean, Bart Sears really put a lot into it. And then I didn't even notice Captain Adam's on the cover, too. And he's not even in Bialya with him. So I, I take back everything I said about this cover being actually happening. It's just more like this is a really good representation of what the story's about. Yeah, you know, what I like about it now that, you know, you have me taking a look back at it is the coloring, actually, of all of the people in the water is, like, really well done. Sort of, uh, you know, subtle plays of reflections and that sort of stuff. So, so every aspect of this is pretty solid. And last issue was another excellent cover by... Bar Sears also. That's the one where all the JLE were up against like a brick wall and everyone's like throwing stuff at them. The French citizens were angry. Oh, yeah. So these are uh, these are a couple of really great covers. I mean, I I guess I had kind of forgotten how much I love Justice League Europe. And this is, the, the cover's great and the interior art in this book is gorgeous. There's some great stuff here. I do like on page three how we get a look at the cities uh, or country. I guess the whatever the capital city of Bialya is. I don't really know. I guess it's Bialya City. But Bialya, I mean, the architecture is really cool and very futuristic and I'm thinking and considering this was a third world you know, war-torn country just a few years ago, they have really come a long way with their architecture and, and building instruction and construction. It's uh, very, very impressive. Queen Bee uh, is, it should be proud of what she's done. Yeah, she's elevated them and her people love her. Then, you know, in the beginning of the story, uh, they sneak, the, the Justice League sneak in. You get Buddy Baker and you get Power Girl sneaking in, in plain clothes. And the only thing that jumped out of me was they did that same exact thing last issue when they snuck into the dome and Power Girl got recognized that time. So I'm not sure why they thought they could get away with it again this time. I'm glad it all worked. But uh, if you're going to try the same trick, maybe switch up the team members so that it's not exactly – because Power Girl's a little memorable, I would think. 
<laughs> I would say yes. And I mean, for me, it was a little bit amusing that she's like, we have to, we can't use our code names. We're in public. And then she then uses you know, Animal Man's code name. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so there's a little bit of banter back and forth that I thought was amusing as they don't even know how to do this. So to try it a second time doesn't seem to make much sense. I, I am truly cherishing every scene with Animal Man, buddy, in, in these because I know he's only here for about 12 issues. So every time he shows up, I just I eat that scene up and I love the banter with him. Yeah, between him and Power Girl. It's very, very funny. And, and how she gets her nose bent out of the joint at the end, too. She's like, you don't have to gloat about it when she's been sitting here criticizing him the whole time, which is fun. Now, compliment to Flash, when, when they go into their, their little apartment or whatever it is, their, their hotel room, Flash mentions all these things he did. He swept for bugs and everything. And he specifically mentions that he blocked the air vents and shut down the air conditioning, which is very impressive that they thought to mention that just simply because if you go way back uh, to Justice League International number thing number 16 whatever it was where Blue Beetle and Booster got knocked out by the gas in the room so th- they know that's a Bialian trick so pretty uh, I'm impressed that they managed to go, go all the way for that callback yeah and it's probably the one thing that Flash did actually he's done a couple of things but um, it seems pretty smart for him and uh, for me it works out well because uh, throughout this whole issue everybody's like boy you know everybody says you're not as good as Barry and you know you can tell that he's starting to get irked by the constant uh, comparison. Yes. It, it's, it's a joke that, it, like, sometimes I feel like it's a tired joke, but then when it comes back, it, it feels nice and warm and familiar. So I'm, I'm happy with that joke still at this point. <laughs> Until he it figures out the whole Speed Force thing, it is fair to compare him to Barry, I think. Yes. And Flash is actually surprisingly effective in this one. He does the air vent thing. He's the one that takes out the, the final blow for um, what's his name? Yeah, Jack-O-Lantern. Jack-O-Lantern, yeah. So, I mean, Flash is pretty competent in this issue. I mean, surprisingly, all the members are very effective in this issue. Usually, the Justice League are all tripping of each other and screwing up. So I would say that this issue lives up to the promise that Justice League Europe promised where they said that they were going to make a more action-oriented, heroic-type book because they felt like just, you know, a lot of people said Justice League America was too jokey, so Europe was supposed to be the answer to that and be more heroic, and I would say this issue qualifies. Yeah, the, the thing that was cool for me was that there is sort of this, uh, I don't want to say like backbiting or infighting amongst them. I don't know if they've necessarily gelled as like friends, yeah. but they've totally gelled as a superhero team. The way they bring it to Jack-O-Lantern in that sewer is pretty impressive. Yeah, that was fantastic teamwork. So speaking of the team, so let's talk about Captain Adam's ability to lead them as a team. You know, that, 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 that's been discussed throughout this issue here when he's talking to Martian Manhunter. They're questioning his ability, to his choices as a leader. At the end, you know, him and Catherine Colbert are talking and she's saying that he, she thinks he's a great leader. I and mean, she even flirts with him, like it kind of puts her finger on his nose and says, like, I think you're great in leadership and other things or something like that. There was a there was a hint, like a bit of a sexual tension there, which was nice. What do you think of Captain Adam as a leader? Well, you know, you would have to fill in the blanks a little bit more for me. I remember that there was this whole deception with the League. And so I would find it hard to follow if he were leading because of all of that stuff that's in the past. But he's a military man. This is an action-oriented team that's supposed to fight. So, uh, so I think from a tactical point of view, he's probably fine. I just think that I would worry that, you know, who is giving him the orders that he's then giving them. Yeah, could be. I, one of the things I, I was impressed, and in, in maybe this is the military training with this one that you mentioned, is is he stood back and let the soldiers do the work this time. He wasn't in Bialga. He didn't insist on being there like most superheroes do, like, I'll come join you, whatever. He let them run the op. 
And I thought that was actually a really good leadership position. Now, it was pretty risky going to Veolia. That was a huge risk. But uh, the fact that four little superheroes can take down entire government that quickly, or at least put a stop to the government and, and the problems that were involved, is pretty impressive. But yeah, I, I give credit to Captain Adam for doing that. Completely agree. Then, so the Dominator, that was awesome. I did not expect, I completely forgotten that he shows up in here. And that was a, insane because Bart Sears drew Invasion. So, and Invasion is what launched Just League Europe. So that was a really nice nod to see those two things in there. Yeah, you know, clearly Giffen, this is his wheelhouse to have the Dominators and these aliens that both impact the Legion and impact the present. So it was great to see him because I do think it tied together that invasion piece. But it also, you know, for us Legion fans was like, oh, he's going to like make the Legion be an important part of the present as well as the future. Yeah. And I started reading just recently the uh, Acronym Legion comic on the DC Universe app because I, I haven't read them since they were first published. And man, enjoying the heck out of that. So and another that was another Giffen work trying to put the Legion in modern day as well. Just touching on a little bit of from comic book script writing. You know, you've always got your A plot going and then you've got your B plot and your C-plot sort of cooking in the background here. There's a really nice sort of uh, through line of the B-plot with Metamorpho in this issue because you get early on where he's sort of like depressed and he's he actually thinks about ditching the team. When they get to be all you, he, he oozes out of the plane and he's like, you know what, maybe I should just skip out of here. You know, I, everyone else gets to go do the glamorous stuff. I have to travel, you know, cargo. This isn't really for me. Maybe I should just jump on a plane and fly away. I don't even have any memories of my past. What's it worth anyway? So you get that moment. And then at the end, Sapphire Stag sort of enters the picture, which is his wife. And if you're not familiar with the character, when Metamorpho was published like in the, in the 60s, it was basically a humor strip. It really was. You had uh, Metamorpho, who was like an adventuring character. He had his girlfriend, Sapphire Stag, who was basically, and forgive me, I, I, I didn't create these characters, but she was the spoiled little rich girl. You know, is basically what she was. She was the beautiful, incredibly gorgeous, voluptuous, blonde, not too bright rich girl who spent all of daddy's money. You know, she'd get upset when he cut off his tens of thousands of dollars that he gave her. And the father was Simon Stagg. It was like this corporate jerk. And he had a giant caveman that worked for him named Java. But Sapphire Stag showing up at the end of this issue was a big shocker. And obviously, again, that whole B-plot was nicely woven throughout. Yeah, you know, the, the thing that was great was that you're right. There's this first scene where he comes out of like the wheel well of the plane, yep. right? And this is after Kara and Buddy are, you know, dressed to the nines and going to this posh hotel. And then you've got the Sapphire thing at the end. And then in the middle, there's the scene where he, despite, you know, this questioning of himself, you know, is, no, I'm going to re reconnoiter the city. And then when he sees the Dominator, he's like, I have to let my friends know. So it doesn't break him away from what his duty is necessarily, but you can tell that, you know, it took something like seeing a Dominator and remembering the invasion to kind of like snap him back into true action. So I do kind of like that, that piece in the middle where despite what we hear in the beginning and despite that ending part, he sort of has to come to grips with it and, and do that super heroic part of letting his team know what's happened. No, I think that's fair. And I think this is sort of, it's developing here because I've always felt like Metamorpho and Elongated Man are sort of the emotional core of the team. Because as you go through the Justice League Europe and keep going for, you know, years and years down the line, those two still continue with the team and seem kind of um, the heart and soul, if you will, of the team. So I, I think you're seeing some of that building here. So let's talk about some of this art. Page 14, the giant splash of Jack-O-Lantern in the sewer. Wow, that's phenomenal. I love that shot because I, I love the Jack-O-Lantern design, the full mask with it. It's really dark. It's, you know, this dark, 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 dark purple color, and it matches the lantern. It just looks fantastic. Yeah, and, you know, 
I love this page as well, and it does. It makes me realize just how powerful he is. Again, I'm coming from that super friend story, <laughs> so this is a whole different feel. And I think the thing that gets me is that purple and green, hey, those go together, you know, like peanut butter and jelly in comics. Yep. He's got a navy blue cape and navy blue bucket boots, and somehow it still works, yeah. right? You wouldn't expect blue to work with purple and green, but it does here. And he just looks like a complete badass. Yeah. I just love that page. He's absolutely like a boss. Now, I, I have this comic book. Well, let's let's face it. I've given so much money to the Justice League comic books. It's ridiculous over the years because I have the physical comic in front of me. I have I purchased the trade on Comicsology. I have it on DC Universe. So I've got these things a lot of different ways. But I will say, if you look at Jack O'Lantern's costume in the comics, physical comic versus the digital version, there is some differences. In the printed comic, it's a much more magenta sort of purple. Mm. And if you look in the in the digital version, it's much more of a blue sort of purple. And I think I like the magenta better. There's a sharper contrast. But where I'm going with this is the mask just looks incredible when it's digitally colored. Because in the physical comic, the black part of the mask sort of like gets a lot of the ink gets sucked up by the paper. But digitally, the mask, when it's all this black shading and it highlights, it just looks awesome. He is such hmm. a cool looking character. I've got to dig out. I've got to find those Super Friends comics. I've never read them. And, I, you know, there's so much Global Guardian stuff in there that I, I really should have read those by now. I feel, I feel like a bad person for not reading them. <laughs> then another artistic thing I really like, on page 18 where they get to Queen Bee's lab and they, they, they sort of confront her and there's this nice sort of sandwiched set of three panels. It's on the top of the page. The left-hand panel's got Flash leaning up against a wall and he's saying, hey, you know, kind of like you're busted. Then the middle panel is an angry face of the Queen Bee and the right-hand panel is Power Girl and she's sort of leaning on the opposite wall so it almost looks like they're both leaning in like bookends on the shot of power uh, of Queen Bee as if to basically give you a sense like uh, she's surrounded. I think it's really cleverly well designed well. And the thing that I like there is there's sort of almost like a playfulness with Power Girl. She is not somebody that necessarily joins in the fun, mm -hmm. but she's sort of like leaning with one hip jutted out and, you know, she's sort of like teasing the Queen Bee that they basically have her. So I totally like that. I think it worked. The, the body language with Flash and Power Girl both show that they know they've got the upper hand. Yeah, as you said this earlier, so I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but yeah, but between the fight in the sewer and this situation here with the Queen Bee, they really, you're right, they do feel like they've jailed as a team. And that's nice, because up till now, they really hadn't. They were tripping over each other quite a bit, so this this feels good. Then in the, uh, a couple of more art things I just got to mention is I love, love, love the shading on Captain Adam's face. I've talked about this before, the way Bart Sears draws these series of parallel lines to represent shade on Captain Adam's face, especially on like the last page. It just looks so cool. It's such a cool technique. It, it gives you the metallic sense. It gives you the shadow effect. It just looks awesome. I can't think of anyone else that does like chrome and metal shine as well uh, as well as him. I, it just it looks great. Yeah, it really feels like metal even though it's, you know, there's no metallic inks here. You just know it's super shiny reflective. It's yeah. just great. And don't spend any time thinking about his hair and, and what that <laughs> feels like and how he brushes it. So, speaking of hair, Wally West's hair is finally the correct color uh, by, after three issues gone now, the fourth issue, they finally got Wally's hair red. It's been blonde throughout all these issues, which was very confusing because him and we couldn't tell him and Buddy apart. Now it's red, and there is a distinct enough difference between Wally's face and uh, elongated man's face that you can tell the difference between to those two guys without their masks. So uh, I, I feel like we're, we're finally there. We're finally where we need to be. Thank goodness. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's some funny bits in here, too, that I wanted to mention. Now, the Bwahaha Award is yet to come, but uh, there, there's one line that I just noticed today when I was getting ready to record. I hadn't picked up on it before, and I don't know whether I'm reading something that's not there or if it's just insanely subtle. Power Girl is talking about how uh, what happened to Blue Beetle, you know, how he got brainwashed all this stuff. And Animal Man says, yeah, I heard about that. How's he doing? And she says, he's back to normal. And he says, that's good news, right? And I realized today, that's a joke. He, he's, he's implying that Blue Beetle being back to normal might not be a good thing. And I, I, that caught me off guard. I was like, oh, oh, that's really funny. I like that. Okay. Then later on, Dimitri, in this line, just I, I laugh so hard every time. When he's talking about Martian Manhunter, he goes, don't worry, Ralph. His barf is worse than his bike. Which... <laughs> I just love that guy so much. He cracks me up. I'll say that um, I was very happy, uh, Shag, when I saw that you were writing down these, like, I agree, all of these are hilarious. I'm just glad you didn't take my bwahaha moment, which, uh, you know, you'll hear in a, in a second. It's okay. none of these. I purposely kept mine out of here as well, so we'll see. Two more uh, to talk about then real quick. They're Animal Man related because I love Animal Man. Yeah. When he's in the sewer and, and they're getting ready to fight Jack and he's like, okay, folks, here, I'll do this. And he goes, oh, where are they, all the elephants when you need them? And there's this cute little mouse that goes, squeak, squeak. And he's like, yeah, I think you're cute, too. That just cracked me up. Because <laughs> Animal Man without other animals is a little bit useless. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And then the part where he's holding on to Jack-O-Lantern's lantern, and he's got this like, ha-ha, I've got your weapon now, and Jack-O-Lantern mentally calls the lantern to him. So there's this great shot that Bart Sears has drawn where Buddy goes flying across the sewer. <laughs> like uh, He's just he's all crouched up, but he's holding on to the lantern, and the lantern's with flying across the sewer. It's hard to describe. I'll put it in the gallery post, which you can find on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. But it's just a really funny set of panels which just cracks me up I, that was all the illustrations selling it yeah I will say my second the, what almost was my bwahaha moment was um, an animal man moment which is during that great splash page when Jack Lantern shows up he goes oh my god it's pumpkin man and Jack Lantern <laughs> is like it's Jack Lantern and then he's like oh, I knew that right so, <laughs> so I just thought that that was awesome that is a hysterical moment which you might hear about again in a few minutes but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> before we get to the Award. Why don't we take a moment to do a segment I like to call Character Spotlight. This is where our guest will be asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters in this issue. It's not really an origin recap per se, but more about where the characters were in the DC Universe just before joining the JLI and what kind of impact the JLI had on their career. Now, as I mentioned earlier, guys, Ange is the authority on Supergirl in the comic blogosphere. I mean, without a doubt, he's been doing this blog for, I think, close to three decades now. And before the internet was even invented, I think. If if you want to know anything about Supergirl, he's your go-to guy. So, I figured Ange is the guy to tell us about Power Girl. So, Ange, take it away. Well, for me, I think it's crazy that she debuts in 1976 in the reboot of All-Star Comics uh, when they have the Super Squad, right? This is the Jerry Conway, Rick Estrada, Wally Wood book. And, you know, Earth 2 had been established for quite some time. And yet, in that whole time, there was never any question of, is there a Supergirl on Earth 2? And it was only in 1976 that we got there. That's 17 years after Kara was uh, introduced, you know, that is the Supergirl on Earth 1. And Power Girl was always sort of a a little bit brasher, a little bit more self-assured of herself, definitely a little bit more liberated, kind of a feminist or a proto-feminist at that point and certainly had more opinions than Supergirl did. You know, when you think of the Supergirl in the Silver Age and the early Bronze Age, she's like trying to discover herself sort of in Superman's shadow. Yeah, Power Girl comes out and she's like I'm playing with the big boys. And then, <laughs> right, and then of course she survives the crisis 
And Supergirl does not survive the crisis, which is sort of interesting, right? Here is the, you know, she's truly on Earth, too. She's been around longer, you know, historically. But she was a newer character, and she lived through it. And so, for me, seeing her in Justice League Europe was sort of cementing the fact that, hey, this Supergirl analog was a big deal, right? Supergirl was never in the Justice League. Power Girl is in the Justice League. So I always thought that that was sort of a fascinating way, maybe DC recognizing that they could have done something with the Supergirl-type character, and they weren't going to let that moment pass them by. Of course, she can't be Kryptonian, so there has to be a little bit of an origin rewrite, you know, and I won't get into it too much, but, you know, she ends up being this distant relative or close relative thrown into the future of Arion, so not Kryptonian at all. Um, it's the origin nobody's happy with. Let's just, make, the, let's just right. call it what it is. <laughs> and I will tell you, thanks to Ryan Daly, that was my inaugural podcast, was doing the Power Girl Secret Origin story where all of that was revealed. Oh I my gosh. Before, so that's a long time ago. Um, but the thing that got me was that, you know, again, Supergirl is considered to be like optimistic and bright and sees the best in people and is fierce in her fight for justice, but it's because she wants to do good. And I don't know if you got the same sense that I did, but, you know, Power Girl here, she seems like almost mean, almost shrew like. You know, this is if you're a guy and you think feminism is bad, you might write a woman like this this, who just seems bitter and seems to always be scowling and never in a good mood. And it could just be that every team needs that kind of angry, bitter hero who just sees everybody as fools around them. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll comment on that just real quick. I think, in, obviously, I, I don't know what J.M. DiMatteis and, and Keith Giffen were thinking, but to me, it's more like if you read those all-star comics issues where she premieres, which, by the way, are near and dear to my heart. I love those comics so much number 58, 59, 60, those three. Uh, I had those for years, and they weren't my first introduction to the Justice Society, but it's the first time I ever felt like I was reading a Justice Society comic book rather than le reading the Justice Society guest starring in something else. Like, I think I read those before I even read All-Star Squadron and Infinity, Inc. So for me, those were my Justice Society stories, and that's where Power Growth introduced. If you, if you read those, she's pretty much like that. She is not pleasant. She's always fighting with, with Wildcat. She's always pissed at Superman, and she's an angry person there. So it's it's sort of like if they just took that version of her and cranked it to eleven is sort of what I think the Justice League Europe version is. Interesting. But you're right; she's she's kind of unlikable. That's true. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting contrast to Supergirl. Uh, so if you're saying I'm reading this book because I'm trying to find some version of Supergirl in the DCU that I can sort of latch onto and follow, this is a, certainly a very different take on Akara than the. Supergirl that we read in Paul Kupperberg's Daring New Adventures and even The Crisis. Very true. So, you know, and then what I'll say is she has some growing pains as she goes through this. Is she Atlantean or not Atlantean? A few crummy costume choices in the future. Hey, uh, now, wait a minute. Which one, which costumes are you talking about? Some of them I don't are know. There's like that headband one with like triangles okay. everywhere. That, that that one's pretty rough. That's a terrible the, the blue, yeah, the blue and white and red one. That costume is terrible. Yeah. The gold power suit I'm okay with. Yeah, I like the gold, the gold and silver one. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's sort of interesting to sort of see where she has gone through the ages, right? So she becomes part of the Justice Society when Jeff Johns reboots them. She actually becomes the leader of 
of the JSA All-Stars, which is sort of like a younger team or the, the legacy team. And there, again, has a little bit of a chip on her shoulder. And then she kind of becomes a humor book when Amanda Connor and Jimmy Pamiati take over. And I don't know if post that book, DC really sort of knows what to do with her. Yeah, so. they've, they've done a lot of different things trying to figure it out. I mean, when, when the New 52 came along, they had that World's Finest book where she was literally the Supergirl of Earth 2, comes to Earth 1 and takes the name Power Girl. Yeah. Uh, and they did the same thing with Huntress, uh, which was Robin over there. But I'm pretty sure both of those versions have been retconned back out. And now the current Power Girl and Huntress are more the traditional flavor versions, I believe. If I, I haven't been keeping up with all of it, but I think that's where we are now. And, and, you know, when we were doing this and getting ready for it, I was thinking, I'm like, wow, you know, this is this is Power Girl's very first Justice League. This is kind of a big deal, the first time she ever joined the Justice League. And then I realized she never does again, which is weird because it seems like everyone's joined the Justice League at some point, right? For some, you know, extended period nowadays. It's like the Avengers, you know, if you pretty much put on spandex, you get to join the team. But, yes, yeah, she never joins the Justice League for any extended period of time beyond Justice League Europe, which is surprising. Yeah, you know, I mean, truly the only time that I think Supergirl joined long-term was in that James Robinson run where he kind of had a whole bunch of legacy characters sort of come on board. So, so I'm not surprised to hear that. And I'll tell you that it's funny because now when I think of Power Girl, really what I think about is that humor book by Connor and Pamiati, which I found delightful. Oh, and yeah. and then I have to remember like, oh yeah, she was kind of that, that one with the chip on her shoulder who was like angry, which is so different than kind of the silly take on super heroics that they did. Well, they needed, like, like if, if you look at the formula of Justice League International, you've got Guy Gardner over there just being brash and a total jerk, right? And they needed a little bit of that on this team, too. And it's sort of like sh the Guy Gardner is a mixture between Power Girl and Flash. You know, like, Flash is the absolute worst traits of Guy Gardner, and mm. Power Girl is the brashness and confidence of Guy Gardner, sort of, is, is kind of how I... This is all off the top of my head. Maybe someone else can put this together differently, but that's how I'm kind of seeing it. No, I mean, I think you're probably right. Uh, you know, as they try to say, you know, all of these all of these characters in a team book, you know, have to kind of fit some type of archetype. And if you had one person that had both of those things, people would be like, what are you, copying guy? And yeah. so to split them up, and especially to give Power Girl, right, the, the, like one of the female members, that, that strength and that authority, I think is probably an interesting take. So I've said this before on other podcasts. I don't think I've said it here on the Justice League podcast yet. And Ann just probably heard this theory as well, but I think that Power Girl was the missed opportunity to fix the Legion in post-crisis. <laughs> yeah. The biggest problem in post-crisis for the Legion was, oops, we can't have Superboy anymore. All of a sudden, that messes up all kinds of Legion continuity. So they start plugging holes. You know, it's like, it's like sticking your fingers in the dike. You know, you're, you're putting it all over the place and it pops more holes. I And maybe this is just the gift of hindsight. I don't know. But I think if you had just said, all right, you know what, Power Girl, forget all the Atlantean stuff. Just say she's a Daxamite. Be done with it. And then send Power Girl to the future and say that all yeah. those Superboy stories was Power Girl. And it would have been, you know, so then it would have been Power Girl in the Legion of Superheroes. And all those stories from the 60s would have featured Power Girl. So you would have had to done some tweaking for the, the weird romance issues. But overall, I think it could have worked without having to chase their tail with, with you know, the Pocket Dimension Superboy and then the, oh, geez, Valor and then Kent Shakespeare and all the various chasings, you know, and then retconned it all back together. I think that would have worked. I, 
I, I, yeah. I wrote an extensive piece for it on the Legion of Super Bloggers. Feel free to Google it. It's out there. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, certainly it had to be easier than retconning the universe uh, at the end of issue four and then retconning the universe that you just retconned at the end of issue five and getting a completely new universe in issue six, which, of course, is what they did in 5YL. So. God, those comics were really, really good. Oh, they were so good. They're so delicious. I just love those books. <laughs> and if you want to read an amazing recap of the five year later era, again, go to Legion of Super Bloggers. Ange wrote those, uh, did every issue of the 5YL, and did an amazing job recapping them. They're exceptional. Well done, Ange. Uh, as I've said before, and I'll say again, I consider truly those reviews the high point of my blogging career. Wow. That is high praise considering everything you've done, sir. All right, on that high note, why don't I lead us to the thing everyone's been waiting for? It's now time for us to decide the. Pwahaha Award. All right, so this is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Dr. Ange will pick a moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, I have uh, tipped my hand a bit. Sir, I don't know what yours is. Why don't you tell us, people at home, what is your Bwahaha nomination? Uh, well, I kind of hit on it a little bit tangentially earlier, but for me, it's page 17, the second panel. Wally has just clobbered Jack-O-Lantern with this, like, super speed right cross, and and then we get that that joke that has sort of permeated the whole issue. You know, Animal Man says, that was great. I don't know why Ralph, because there's all these things about how Ralph is always saying Wally isn't as good a Flash as Barry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he doesn't even get to finish it. He's like, I don't know why, Ralph. And Wally says, don't say it, because he's sick of hearing it. So I thought that was funny. But I'll tell you, that was just narrowly over another moment, which I get the sense is your Bwahaha moment. It could very well be. The thing I have to say about the Wally moment, I do like, you know, first of all, the illustration looks great. You know, Animal Man's pulling himself out of the sewers there, hold, out, of the, out of the water, holding the lantern. Wally's holding on to the unconscious form of Jack-O-Lantern. But the thing that really sells it is when Wally says, don't say it, each one gets his own sort of, like, separate bubble. So you yes. really do feel the the, 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 sta- um, the staccato nature of what he's saying, yeah. Yes, thank you. Exactly. You do, because you don't say it. So it's really yeah. nice. It's really nice. My Bwahaha moment is a page or two back, which is, again, I, I, I sort of leaned into it earlier. It's the big splash page. Yes, Jack-O-Lantern shows up, and in a way it screams, oh my god, it's Pumpkin Man! Which I, I genuinely laughed out loud when I got to that page when I was reading it again for the show. And then, the name Twit is Jack-O-Lantern! I knew that! You know, <laughs> which just really made me laugh. So, now is where we have to decide which moment works better. I, I gotta say, there's something to be said for the Wally moment, because that's been a reoccurring gang that's been going on for four, actually, more than four issues, because it even goes back to JLA number 24. So, that's that's definitely a contender. Where, where, where are you leaning right now? Well, to be honest, it was really a coin toss for me, and so the fact that you picked the second moment that I thought was funny, I'm willing to give it to, oh my god, it's Pumpkin Man, because I also laughed out loud at that moment. You know, I, I, I'm torn I want to be generous host, but also I like being greedy and I like winning. But more importantly, I want to give the award to Animal Man because we're not going to have a lot of opportunities to do that. So I think we're going to award the Bwahaha Award to Buddy Baker, Animal Man. Congratulations, Buddy. Wear the award with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. All right. Well, Dr. Ange, uh, with the Dominator out of the picture, I think the Queen Bee might be in the market for a new medical professional. How about you go polish up your resume for a while while I cover listener feedback? I think that's great. I'm working on the gene bomb as we speak. 
So is that the gene bomb from Invasion, or is that the gene bomb from the X-Men parody of Invasion? Uh, if it involves Jean Grey and me, it's probably something to do with Jean Grey. <laughs> <laughs> I will mark that down. Dr. Ange, Redheads, check. Okay. Well, don't worry, Dr. Ange. We will bring you back at the end of the show. Now, folks, while Dr. Ange is taking care of that, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. All right, before we get started, just a little bit of info. Folks, this episode is about two months late, so I apologize for that. I think I accidentally took the summer off. It was kind of nice. Well, we're back at it now. In other news, if you haven't heard, there's a new JLI trade paperback that's been solicited. It's called Justice League Corporate Maneuvers Trade Paperback. Supposedly, according to Amazon, so you never know if these things are true or not, it is scheduled to be released February 18th, 2020 for the cover price of $24.99 and will collect Justice League Quarterly issues 1 through 4. So this will be the first time that those have been collected. It introduces the conglomerate, a new super team assembled by Booster Gold, including such famous comic book heroes such as Max. Maximan, Praxis, Echo, Vapor, and Reverb. Yeah, I know. You've got posters of them on your wall already. Also want to mention, I went to the Boston Fan Expo over the summer and got a chance to meet Ty Templeton and got an amazing commission from him of Big Barda, and it is stunning. So I am very excited about that. Also worth note, over on Facebook, there is a new group you can join called Justice League International, the Giffen Dimatteis Era. And then in parentheses, this is 1987 to 1996. Now, this is not tied to the show in any such way. It's a separate group that's been formed. Uh, in fact, one of our listeners, Buddy Baker, tipped me off to it. So it looks like a great group of folks that have only been around for a little while, but lots of fun JLI posts out there. So be sure to check it out over on Facebook. Join the group and start sharing in the JLI love. One last thing before we get into your feedback, folks. Since our last episode, the Fire & Water Podcast Network has launched a Patreon. Essentially what it boils down to is we started this a little while ago to help cover the expenses associated with running a network so large and so diverse with so much content. I mean, we were fine absorbing the fees all these years, uh, the, the founders of the network. However, it's gotten really, really expensive. So we launched the Patreon to help cover the bills. And if you are enjoying the JLI podcast, really the best way to help support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And please consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network there. There are a wide variety of support levels to choose from. One level includes the reward of being thanked on each episode of a particular show. For those that have chosen the JLI podcast, a very special thank you goes out to our Patreon supporters such as Devin Clancy, Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy, Rudy Gostilio, David Ace Gutierrez, Chris Lewis from our UK Embassy, Tim Price, Sean Ross, Gord Tolton from our Canadian Embassy, and Max Traver. Our thanks to those folks for their support. And please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. One of the fun things is we had set a goal early on with Patreon that if we reached a certain level of sponsorship, we would actually watch the failed 1990s Justice League TV pilot. Oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The goal would be to record a discussion of that. Well, we set that goal early and we've already exceeded that goal, so that means we will be recording that in the coming months. So and it will be available for everyone to hear, not just Patreon subscribers. So be sure to watch for that while we cover the Justice League Oof, TV pilot. All right, folks, now I want you to go out on the social medias. We talked about it. FW Podcast is our hashtag. 
like JLI Podcast on Twitter, Justice League International, Blah Ha Podcast on Facebook. Remember, this is all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're outside of the United States, let me know, because we will assign you to the appropriate embassy, which is also useful to know because we then have to filter iTunes with the proper country. Speaking of which, we have a new iTunes review from Lieutenant Commander Josh. He says, Nostalgia! The Irredeemable Shag comes close to redeeming himself through this great podcast. Despite what all of his guest hosts say, Shag has great taste in comics and puts on an excellent podcast. I need a snorkel to swim through all the nostalgic memories I'm experiencing listening. This was my favorite DC comic in my favorite era of DC Comics. I first picked up JLI with issue number four and hung on through breakdowns, and I enjoy living these issues again with Shag and the motley collection of degenerates he invites as co-hosts. Signed, Josh. Well, thank you very much, Lieutenant Commander Josh. That review was very, very kind. Now, folks, if you haven't left a review in iTunes, please consider going out there and leaving a review. It helps to raise the profile of the show and really helps other people find the show and helps our community grow. And we're having new people every single month. And if you have no intention of leaving an iTunes review, well, I might just consider sending Guy Gardner to your house for a date. Just saying. All right, let's get into your feedback, folks. We're going to be pulling comments from our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, emails that have come in, social media, pulling bits and pieces. Now, I'm going to be covering our most recent episode featuring JLA number 27 and JLE number 3 with my guest hosts George O'Connor and Gregor Rujo. Now, I will not be able to cover everything that was written in the feedback. There is so much feedback you guys provide. However, I am going to pick and choose and try and make sure everyone gets name-checked at the very least. And our first comment, as I said, we get new listeners every single month. This is from Sergeant Retired Daniel Costello. He wrote, I found the network via a search on CastBox for Justice League International. I was curious to find a podcast that would cover that period of the Justice League and was so pleased to find the Bwahaha podcast. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. Welcome to the family. Then we heard from my buddy Jose Rivera in regard to JLA number 27. He goes, something was going on with Ted, meaning Blue Beetle, and when you have to bring in Amanda Waller of all people to help out, that's when you know it's bad. She got in a few good hits, but in watching her hold Ted as he started convulsing really got a reaction out of me. I've always wondered, is Waller holding him to quell the seizures, or is she letting her facade drop in a moment of maternal compassion as she tries to bring Ted back? Wow. That's an interesting thought, Jose. I hadn't thought about that, because yeah, the, the maternal instinct in her has got to be pretty high, so that could be about right. Right there on the page. I'm not sure. Then we heard from Mike Kramer about JLA. He says, I actually forgot that we get the date with density in the middle of this storyline. I guess it just goes to show how invested we are in Ted's situation, and we forget years later that the story gets put on hold for a moment to go on a date night for some laughs. I had forgotten myself as well, Mike. Then we heard from my buddy Clinton Robinson from the Coffee and Comics podcast. He says, another fun episode. Over the years of casually flipping through back issue bins, I always thought it was supposed to be Martian Manhunter on the Justice League America cover. Keep in mind, I hadn't been reading much of Justice League America at the time, and what I had was the Dan Jurgens era. Woo, okay. Uh, Clinton, lot to unpack there. First of all, really? Martian Manhunter? You should be ashamed of yourself, sir. Oh my goodness. And when I see you next, which by the time you listen to this might be the next day, we're going to have some strong, strong words about this. And then the most of your JLA reading was Dan Jurgens. Well, sir, I hope you have bought all the JLI issues since then. If not, you and I are going comic shopping. All right, up next was Bradley Null. He says, my 20th birthday present for my pal Z was 20 comics. This represents one-tenth of that. <laughs> and he's a great episode. Well, thank you so much, Bradley. Then we heard from Martin Gray, my buddy from the Scottish Embassy. He also does the Two Dangers for a Girl blog. He says, talking of Ralph Dibney, I never understood why Sue was drawn so differently in Justice League Europe to her classic look. She went from classic high society cutie to generic babe. Mind, she doesn't look half bad in the stereotype French beret and Breton shirt in a few issues. Chaw! 
Hot. I had to look that up. That's French for hot. And then he goes on to say, brilliant thought from Greg about Catherine being swapped for Wonder Woman on the Justice League Europe cover. But it looks as if the colors thought they had fire to deal with. I suppose the cut of Wonder Woman's costume is similar. Hmm. All good thoughts, Martin. Thank you so much. Then we heard from Everton Vieira do Carmo from the Brazil Embassy. He says, it took me a year to realize that was Amanda Waller on the cover. Huh, okay, so first Clinton, now you. I guess maybe there's some uh, mystery about who that was on the cover. And then he goes on to say, I skipped European League editions because I did not like the art. So when I got to the breakdowns, I was like, oh, I should have read these issues. And I was surprised to see how good the script was. Everyone commented how the Justice League America was a big sitcom. Well, I'll tell you, Justice League Europe was definitely a sitcom. You know, Tom, I got to agree. As you read on with Justice League Europe, it does really lean heavy into the humor. Then we heard from my buddy Kichi Baker, another guy who spent a lot of time with the Boston Fan Expo. He says, you guys went after Captain Adam for saying there were no European heroes, quote, worth their salt. However, neither of you took the time to examine the fact that he may have been right. Ouch, Keith. Ouch. <laughs> then we heard from Damian Whiter from the English Embassy. When George and I talked about that Exorcist cover, we were debating what, who was the artist. We were pretty sure it was Kevin McGuire, but the evidence wasn't concrete because we'd seen a lot of conflicting reports. Well, Damien comes in to say that in a letter later column, they say Kevin McGuire penciled and inked the covers for 27 and 29 and how he had painstakingly spent hours drawing little dots for the cover of 27, meaning the Exorcist cover, and then had to painstakingly spend hours and hours drawing beautiful women for the cover of issue number 29. That will be our next issue of JLA that will cover and that's the one where Blue Beetle surrounded by a bunch of women. So that's great. Damien goes on to say I had to dig into my long boxes to get involved in the debate about who inked what on JLA number 27 and I think it's a straightforward front to back split. I think Dick Giordano took over by page 16 mainly because the shading on Blue Beetle's face. If you contrast this with Scott Free's face on page 12 which I believe was inked by Joe Rubenstein you'll see Dick Giordano has inked the lines free hand whereas Joe Rubenstein has used a Zipatone style pattern for the similar shading. Hmm interesting and he goes on to say of course it's really difficult to tell the two anchors apart because Joe Rubenstein trained at Continuity Studios learning from Neil Adams and Dick Giordano so the line is not hugely different from Dick's wow you know Damien has always got the most interesting bits and pieces of comic book history to add to the discussion so I really appreciate it Damien please keep it coming then we heard from Liz Ann Oswalt, who has her own YouTube channel. She says, yeah, I can believe Amanda Waller can beat Blue Beetle, the only person who scares Batman. <laughs> Good point. Liz goes on to say, Power Girl is still pretty awesome in this. I like seeing her Flash and Ralph as the three amigos. They work well as a team, and them fighting the Global Guardians is kind of interesting. Then Liz goes on to say, Captain Adam, if you're going to work in a country, it's probably a good idea to learn the language. He is there to represent the JLI, or the franchise, in France of all places. A lot of pro wrestlers that go to Japan learn Japanese, unless it's part of their gimmick to piss people off. Wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah, wrestlers who go to foreign countries learning that language makes a lot of sense. Thanks so much, Liz. They heard from my good buddy, Tim Price. He's a real pal. We spent a lot of time together at Boston Fan Expo. Really adore this guy. And he does this great favor for me each episode. He writes a really long dissertation that I read to my daughter, which helps her sleep because, oh my gosh, Tim, find a hobby. Anyway, Tim goes on to say, uh, the layout of the printed comic was so carefully done. Now, he's talking about JLA number 27 here. He goes, big reveals did not happen on facing pages. You had to turn the next page to see it. My favorite was when Amanda Waller tells the seated blue beetle the code phrase, Bialya, my Bialya. Turn the page and Beetle standing up saying, open the door. He looks incredibly flat and sullen and intimidating, taking us completely by surprise as much as Waller, and then attacks. Whoa! That's the advantage of the medium effectively. 
Then Tim goes on to say, It's interesting how the JLA team uses code names more than the civilian ones. I did feel like it happened organically. Fire and Ice joined the team all business to get taken seriously. Booster had that nickname before becoming a superhero. It does make sense in the real world, though. For a team, you use one name to refer to people all the time, regardless of the situation. Look at military nicknames. They don't switch names between missions versus downtime. You get a distinctive name and you make it stick. Now, for Justice League Europe, they're still getting used to each other, but I think we've already seen that most of the team likes using their real names over their hero names, as though the hero names are silly. Thanks, Dimitri, the big-hearted bear, for breaking down that barrier. He goes on to say, and yes, Kara, Wally, and Ralph Trio was excellent. Interestingly, Wally and Kara had some great rapport in this issue, and I saw hints that Kara actually enjoyed teaming with Wally as someone closer to her own age. They're both legacy heroes who are trying to make their own mark, and both have blonde hair. Oh, wait. <laughs> yes, uh, thankfully they've got the blonde hair finally fixed. Then Tim pointed out something that really surprised me. He says, in Huntress number 15, now keep in mind, this is the series that was running parallel to Justice League. He says, in Huntress number 15, check out the General Glory comic book. I think this would be several months before his first gets mentioned in Justice League. Whoa, that's crazy. So the question becomes, was this just coincidence that General Glory appeared in Huntress and then in Justice League, or was it coordinated? I wonder. Then we heard from my buddy Derek Crabb from the Fane Holes podcast and History Comics and Film, also another person we hung out quite extensively with at Boston Fan Expo. Now, he brings to the table some enunciation, because, you know, I'm horrible at pronouncing words. So he's talking about in French. Remember the inspector, the French uh, police inspector, the one who I couldn't come up with his name? So he says, in French, that name is pronounced, let's see if I can get this right, Albert Camus. In English, it's often pronounced pronounced Albert Camus. You notice I, I wasn't able to see either one of those differently. And then, thankfully, he points out Inspector Camus, the new nuclear. Because I can't say that word either. Thank you so much, Derek. And here I thought we were friends. Then we heard from uh, someone else. I, I don't know their real name. I'd love to know who this actually is. They use the name Symbol Pending, which is the name of their Power Girl blog. They write in to say that thanks to certain parts of Who's Who, they've started a Power Girl blog. It's in the very, very early days, but I'd love people to go and visit and offer hopefully constructive comments. And the web address there is symbol-pending.blogspot.com. So check that out, folks. So Symbol Pending goes on to say, I definitely agree that Power Girl's based on somebody, and those sharp features remind me of someone, but I don't think it's Denise Crosby. Derek Crabb chimed in after that. He goes, is it weird that the first real-world person I think of in context to Europe and Power Girl is Princess Diana? Meaning Prince Charles's wife, not Princess Diana the Wonder Woman. Uh, he goes on to say, not saying that's who she's based on, but that's what I thought of when the topic came up. Hmm, very interesting. That's another name to add to the mix. Then we heard from our buddy Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. He says, Irish Embassy calling, and sorry for the absence. Once I got back from Kahui, Kahui, Kahui Island, I received a phone call from Queen Bee saying something to me about Bialya, and next thing I know, it's 28 days later. Weird, right? <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I always appreciate you playing along with the fun gimmicks. Uh, Jimmy goes on to say, it is only when you are comparing the two together that you realize that the Queen Bee is the main antagonist for both JLA and JLE. It was a smart move by Giffen and DiMatteis to make the first JLE storyline involve an existing character from the JLI run, thus drawing in the JLI fans into the new book. Then he goes on to say quite a bit more, but he does apologize for the actions of Jack O'Lantern on behalf of the Irish Embassy. <laughs> then we heard from Crisis in the DC RPG. It says, enjoy these shows and loving all the great commentary on such great and overlooked book. I remember seeing these back in the day and always getting a good smile after reading it. Keep up the great work, Shag, and guests. Oh, well, thank you, Crisis. I appreciate that. Then heard from Justin Stein. 
Steiner, who says, I've seen George O'Connor's work in school before, but now I think I need to start getting the Olympian volumes for my fifth grade classroom. Oh, that would be awesome, Justin. And he says, I too became a big fan of Sue Dibney during the Detroit era and love the dynamic between her and Ralph. I remember being disappointed that the Global Guardians were being used in this way as they are my favorite obscure team. But after 30 years, it doesn't bother me as much. And the work by Bart Sears still holds up. Awesome, Justin. Now, I owe Justin an apology. Justin has been out there helping to promote the show. I sincerely appreciate it. But I didn't see his tweets out there. It, it comes down to Twitter is a weird and, and, and messy beast. The, the gist of it is, if you just retweet it, I'm notified that you retweeted the post. If you retweet with a comment, I'm not actually notified that you retweeted it. It's very strange. So if you tag us in that comment or retweet, I will see it. So enough. Anyway, thank you, Justin. And so glad you've been out there helping us pimp the show. Really appreciate it. Then heard from our buddy Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin from our Denmark embassy. Adam loves to write haikus. So he gave us a couple of haikus, one about Justice League America 27. He goes, teams freeding away, blue with an Azrael block, can Nabu help us? Then for Justice League Europe number three, he writes, what's with the people? Any info at the dome? Renown, renown is gone. All right. Well, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate those. Then we heard from James Young. He says, this era of the Justice League is by far my favorite. And how cool is it that there's a podcast devoted to it? I discovered your show via a post by Emma Anthony Gerardo on the Unite DC Comics Project Facebook page. It was love at first sight and true love upon first listen. Then he goes on to say, I admittedly prefer older comics over newer ones for the most part. So hearing people in my general age range who know their stuff, talking about the characters I love and the masterminds behind them is a treat. Well, thank you, James. And then he tells us about a couple items he picked up recently. He picked up the 1989 postcard set of 10 cards of some of the leaguers exquisitely rendered by the man himself, Kevin McGuire. If you haven't seen it, folks, and you, uh, you should definitely either Google these to check them out or pick up the postcard set yourself. It's gorgeous. It's got a ton of different leaguers. It's before Justice League Europe launched, or at least the Justice League Europe's not included in the postcard set, and they're beautifully rendered by McGuire. He also picked up himself the Class of 87 poster, which is another McGuire classic. So awesome, James. Welcome to the fold and glad you picked up some cool things. Then we heard from Kevin Wetter, because I was just listening to the first half of this episode. You'll be interested to know that J.M. DiMatteis talked about watching the Three Stooges in Spanish and was asked about them dubbed in French at the JLI panel at Heroes Con. Awesome! Thank you, Kevin. Heard from Paul Monk, who goes, I love that, talking about Justice League America number 27, he goes, I love that cover so much and the issue is great too. It's all very serious. Then we heard from Buddy Baker, says, catching up on the podcast, just remembering how much I enjoy JLI annual number two and the issues 15 through 20, especially the interaction between Batman and Hawkman. OMG, that is my favorite moment in JLI history. Found myself laughing often. <laughs> That's great, buddy. Then we heard from JT the Exterminator. He says, so I've been reading ahead a little bit. I wanted to be up to the JLA-JLE crossover, and holy crap, I cannot wait till you cover Justice League Europe number six. I forgot how hilarious that one is right up there with Moving Day. Yeah, JT, that is awesome. That is the French lesson issue of JLE. It is a real uh, spectacular one. Then we heard from Sean Ross from the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast and the Squadron Supreme cast. He sent a message to George O'Connor. He says, I want to let you know that I've kept copies of your work in my classroom and use it to hook struggling readers, especially my boys who hated to read. I can't tell you how many kids devoured your books and begged me to order more copies so they could keep one. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sean. Then we heard from John from the Married with Comics podcast. He goes, I love the JLI and Justice League Europe more than anyone this side of Shag, but the treatment of Power Girl in this series was ass. Her defining feature was outrage played off as, quote, women are so emotional. Am I right? Hmm. Well, he, he got a response from Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, from, who's also part of the Longbox Crusade. And Jared says, in all fairness, this links directly back to the All-Star Comics run back in the 1970s. She was so aggressively moody, she was darn near unlikable. 
So it's in character, but some of the roots of the character aren't great. Yeah, you know, I gotta say, Jared's not wrong. From those all-star comics from the late 70s, which uh, feature like the Super Squad, where Power Girl's introduced, she was really angry, and she was very hostile with Wildcat all the time. So I can see what Jared's saying about the roots of her anger come directly from there, which would make sense to me, given that Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus love the classics, and they would probably dive into the original works to try and figure out the character. So I, I can see where it's coming from. Then we're from Jesse McCullough, who goes, recently found the podcast. I'm very much enjoying it. Thank you for what you're doing. Aw, thank you, Jesse. Welcome to the family. And I uh, got some nice messages from a few other folks. Just want to name check them. Matthew Cody, Joshua Romano, Danny Dowell, Jeremy Daw, and Trike Chemnitz. All right, folks, just going to take a second to award a double stuff award. This is for someone who either goes above and beyond to promote the JLI or just does something really cool in regard to the JLI. And this one's going to go out to my buddy, Tim Price. I mentioned him earlier in regard to Boston Fan Expo. While he was there, he got Ty Templeton to do a Blue Beetle commission, which looks absolutely gorgeous. It's so beautiful. It looks great. I'll be sure to include the Blue Beetle sketch and my Big Barda sketch in the image gallery for this episode. And in addition to the commission, he also, I watched him do this, uh, he dropped a small fortune on little tiny Lego minifigures. He basically found this table of all these DC superhero Lego minifigures, and he picked out all the characters that represented the JLI and built himself a little JLI Lego set. It was really cool, but uh, it really, really hit him in the wallet. So anyway, uh, the Double Stuff Award goes to you, Tim, and folks, if you don't know what I mean by a Double Stuff Award, seriously, get out of your house, go to the grocery store, and figure out what Martian Manhunter likes. It's not too hard to figure out. Anyway, I want to say thank you to Boosterific.com. They gave us a shout-out over on their website lately talking about one of our episodes, so thank you so much for that, Boosterific.com. Now, finally, this is part of the show where we thank everyone who shared on their social media timeline, promoting the JLI podcast over on Facebook or Twitter. It's a long list of names, folks. However, these people showed their support and promoted the show. So really, it's important to me that we recognize these individuals because they took the time out of their day to promote the show and share it out there. And you know what? They're part of the community, too. And this time, we're looking at over 70 names of folks who helped promote this last episode. So our thanks go to... Between the Pages, Bill Beer, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold Facebook page, Buddy Baker, Column Nower, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comic Book Dude 95, Damian Whiter, Darren and Ruth Sutherland with their accounts Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds, David Ace Gutierrez, David Capoon, David T at Bonsal Dad, Debbie Rangel, Doctor Strange, Doc Strange at Billy Delicious, Dr. Ange, no idea who that guy is, Dr. Pop Culture from the Bowling Green State University, Ed Moore, George O'Connor, Green Lantern HG, Greg Arujo, Gus Casals, Hoover Jeremiah, Jack Rocha, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Jeff Messer, Jeffrey Brown, Jen Dita Spelsky, Justice's First Dawn, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Con L, Laurel Mountainflower, Liz Ann Oswald, Long Box of Darkness, Luke Dobb, M. Anthony Gerardo, Mark Lax, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matthias McBride, Matt Ev, Matthew Cody, Max Romero, and his It's Plastic Man in the Mirror Factory accounts, Michael Kramer, Michelle Fife's Copra Press Club on Facebook, Mike Dinez, Nathaniel Devon Sanford, Nicholas Alheim, Pablo Lamoth, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Professor Alan Middleton, Read More Comics, Richard Field, Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Scott Tipton, again, no idea who that guy is, Sean Ross, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Super Lad Kid, Tim Hamilton, Tim Price, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Willie Yarborough, Zack Attack, and Zeb Oswald. 
My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, folks, and this community of JLI fans we're building together are awesome. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably George O'Connor or Gregor Rougeau's fault. So just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Our website is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You can leave the comments there in the show post. That is where most of the conversation is happening. We're also on Facebook as Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast. On Twitter, we're at JLI Podcast. Or you can email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. Now, my thanks again to George and Greg for helping me cover JLA number 27 and JLE number 3. And thanks to you, the listeners, for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we're going to see if we can bring Scott and Dr. Ange together in the same embassy. They burned it down. If you rebuild it, they will come. You didn't hear them? Beg your pardon? The voices? Pete? If you rebuild it, they will come. They blew it up. If you rebuild it, they will come. They demolished it. If you rebuild it, they will come. But horror has a permanent address. Welcome to my home. The house of Frankenstein lives! You see, uh... We began a project a few years ago, but unfortunately it was, it was interrupted and we're most anxious to take it up again. In September and October, the Fire and Water Podcast Network presents a Supermates tradition covering four classic horror films and four related comic book adventures. I must find more victims before my work is done. You need look no further, vampires. We'll take the bat jet to the Hall of Justice and transform the other super friends. <laughs> Featuring an all-star cast. James Spader. Are you crazy? Jack Nicholson. Oh, just marking my territory. Anthony Hopkins. She lives beyond the grace of God. A wanderer in the outer darkness. Lon Chaney Jr. One becomes accustomed to the darkness here. Michelle Pfeiffer. You're afraid that when it gets dark, you'll attack me. Vincent Price. Let's, uh, see what the rest of this mausoleum looks like. Gary Oldman. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Winona Ryder. I almost feel pity for anything so hunted as this count. Peter Cushing. I am a doctor. Of medicine, law, and physics. To the best of my knowledge, doctorates are not awarded for witchcraft. But if ever they are, no doubt I shall qualify for one. And Keanu Reeves. Doctor! This Halloween, visit our field of screens at the scenic House of Frankenstein, where terror is only a listen away. Uh, I don't know. Modern day comics just don't seem to have the magic the older ones did. I wish I could go back to those days. What? What the? Wait, you're me! But, but I'm me! How is this possible? I'm you! From the future! What happens to my voice? Oh, well, uh, actually, I kind of was eating peanuts before I came back, and uh, one of them went down the wrong tube. I'm still trying to get it out, actually. 
nothing. Well, still, the future must be terrible. I mean, your hair's half burnt off. Oh, well, actually, I tripped and fell over the stove. What about the scar on your face? It's a paper cut. And the eye patch? I was looking through a telescope and accidentally pointed at the sun. Look, I have a reason for being here. I built a time machine so you can go back to the past and check out the comics of yesteryear. I figure you'll either enjoy the good old days or you'll gain an appreciation for the current comics. Maybe both. Can I bring some friends with me? Sure, but only one at a time. Well, there you have it. Join me, Mike Staley, and an assortment of co-hosts as we look over the world of DC Comics from half a century ago in my new monthly podcast, DC 50 Years Ago. Who are you talking to? Uh, Don't worry about it. Just check out DC 50 Years Ago on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called, and at dc50yearsago.podomatic.com. Seriously, who are you talking to? Okay, folks, we are back from break, and yup, it appears the JLI teleporter has brought together Scott and Dr. Ange. Fantastic, and it seems like they're all in the right places with the right parts. That's good. Always good when that works out. First, Scott, thank you so much for appearing in this episode of the show. I sincerely appreciate it. It's been an absolute blast chatting with you. You really bring an interesting perspective from the writer's point of view. And uh, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find more of you on the Internet? Sure. Um, every week, as I've been doing for, for as long as I can remember, it seems like, the last 15 years or so, you can find a new column from me on comics and comics history at comics101.com or also at blastoffcomics.com both URLs go to the same place and those appear every Wednesday and then you can find me on Twitter at scott underscore tipton or on as stipton99x on Instagram awesome and don't forget folks you can still find issues of Q Conflict on the shelves if not you can wait till November and pick up that trade paperback and watch for future solicitations of a super secret project that Scott won't tell us about because he's not a very nice person <laughs> thanks again Scott I sincerely appreciate you making the time to my pleasure, man. Now, Ange, I really appreciate you appearing on the show. Would you please tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the internets? Well, you've already kind of done a good job of plugging what I do blog-wise. I have a blog that does all things Supergirl called Comic Box Commentary that also touches on uh, Superman and the event Leviathan event is really what's sort of driving me uh, crazy right now. <laughs> He's not kidding. He sends me private messages asking me clue context questions, and I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about, man. He really obsessed with this. <laughs> um, and then I've manned Fridays on the Legion of Super Bloggers since the inception of that blog. But if you just want general comments on coffee, how hard I work, and a variety of old movies, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Ange 70 And it's a great follow. He posts all kinds of fun, interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, he's generally just kind of a nice guy. <laughs> and speaking of which, by the way, if you don't mind, Ange, could you hang around after the show? I need you to look at this thing on my hip. We'll talk about that later. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Ange. And that's going to do it, folks. Now, come back next episode when we cover Justice League Annual number 3. It's the American team and the European team in the same book. And we'll have another guest host to help me cover the issue. Who's it going to be? Come on, people. You know how this works by now. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Scott. And I'm Dr. Ange. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?